Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all of the great podcasts in the network. There's surely something there for everyone. Check out uh, great podcasts such as the Start Space Podcast or the Push Your Lock Podcast. No matter what you're looking for, you'll find some content for you. Also, while you're there, check out the latest and greatest news and reviews from Tom and Eric and all of the rest of the gang. That's Dicetower.com. Longview is generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go and check out all that Gamesurplus has to offer. They have a steady stream of hard-to-find imports coming in all the time, and if they don't have something you're looking for, just shoot Thelma an email at games at Gamesurplus.com, and she'll be sure to track it down for you. I know she's got some Mysterium on order, for those of us who have been eagerly awaiting that title. And she managed to get me a copy of Virsin Das Volk. Those are the kinds of things that she'll be able to grab for you. So if you're looking for a game that's hard to find here in the U.S., shoot her an email. It's that personal dedication and care for their customers that sets Gamesurplus.com apart. And thanks to them for their continued support. Please be sure to mention that the Longview sent you if you place an order with them, and you'll get your free spin to win, a little marker uh, that she'll send you along for free in your order. It's a great way to decide who's going to be the start player, or in case the five levels of tiebreakers don't work in a game, you can just spin for it. It's a great, uh, wonderful little uh, hand that's made out of metal and spins beautifully on your table, and it's easy to carry around, and a, a great reminder of Game Surplus and all that they have to offer. So be sure to to tell them that uh, the long view sent you in your order and you'll get one of those just for free just for fun that's gamesurplus.com the long view also wants to send a special shout out to my local game store that's the gamer's edge in stroudsburg pennsylvania go and check out all that they have to offer because if you live here in the northeastern pa region or northern new jersey southern new york they're not that far away and they're very conveniently located off of interstate 80 they have over 500 board games in stock at all times, a lot of open table space, and a friendly and knowledgeable staff. So stop by and check out uh, The Gamer's Edge on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. At this time, I'd also like to take a brief moment just to talk a little bit about my supporter drive for this year, 2015. Uh, last year's supporter drive was a uh, big success, thanks to everybody out there uh, who contributed to the show and um, uh, rated us on iTunes and uh, uh, posted about us and followed us on Twitter, etc. And uh, that was a great help. Um, I was able to uh, procure a new laptop uh, that I needed to continue doing the show and recording uh, due to some kind of power and space um, you know, consideration. And, and that was uh, really helpful. I was able to get one on Tanga, uh, nonetheless, uh, that uh, was a refurbished model and has really served me well so far. So very excited about that. Um, the new computer that I have, however, does not have GarageBand. I'm recording this using Audacity. Um, and for you know technical reasons that uh, probably most people don't care about, uh, GarageBand is, is either just something I'm much more familiar with or it's a little bit easier to edit with um, than a program like Audacity, which while it's a wonderful program, program. Uh, it's a little bit clunky and it makes things a little bit uh, more difficult to edit because every time I do a cut or you know something of that nature, I have to start a whole new track and then uh, aligning things so that the sound quality is proper is not always easy, etc., etc. So um, what I was wondering was, uh, you know, well, you know, maybe I could run a supporter drive to kind of help me with that um, because the Tanga laptop did not come with anything but the operating system. 
Um, uh, most Apple laptops will come with GarageBand, but I'm actually going to have to purchase that. So uh, I needed to kind of try and pick up a copy of GarageBand. And I was also hoping that I might be able to uh, hit Gen Con again this year. Um, last year I was able to go. I uh, worked for Stronghold uh, for you know pretty much the entire time I was there and had a blast and uh, a wonderful time. Uh, you know, Don Bonacore treated me well. And, uh, you know, we were able to experience Gen Con there, uh, my friends and I. And not only was I able to kind of see a lot of the stuff that was coming down the pipeline, uh, and, you know, but I was able to talk to a lot of people and uh, learn, and, you know, a lot of things, see a lot of uh, old classic games, you know, that always get played at cons and whatnot. And I, I kind of felt it was a really valuable experience uh, for me personally and as a podcaster to kind of uh, put my finger on the pulse, as it were, of the gaming community. So um, the uh, supporter drive this year is really for those two purposes, to uh, kind of help out a little bit with defraying some of the cost of Gen Con and also um, to try and get the GarageBand uh, uh, program for my computer. So uh, I announced the um, uh, supporter drive on the Guild on BoardGameGeek, and uh, I also mentioned it on Twitter, and I've already had some people who are very generous and donated, so thanks to them. Uh, So here's how this supporter drive is going to go. Basically what happens here is Velma has secured me uh, from GameSurplus.com a copy of Mysterium, which right now is a game that people are really interested in. So rather than take that for myself, which I really wanted, uh, I'm going to keep it in shrink. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that as a way of showing some small thanks to people for supporting the show. So if you go to my webpage, uh, thelongviewpodcast.com, you will see a PayPal link right there uh, to make a donation to the show. Uh, If you're able to do that, I would be thrilled and very grateful. If you're not able to do that, that's fine too. It's certainly not anything that I, I feel is required. Uh, certainly not anything that I feel I'm owed. Uh, this is just uh, me uh, reaching out to you listening out there and, and uh, asking for a little bit of help if that's something that you're able to do. Uh, if you'd like to support the show but can't do that, you can always post a review on iTunes. I mean, that that's fantastically helpful as well. Uh, publishers and others look at that and take those ratings very seriously. So that would be fantastic too. And I'd be most appreciative of that uh, if you can't support the show financially. Um, anyway, uh, if you go to thelongviewpodcast.com and click on the donation button. Um, You can donate any amount that you would like. I'd be grateful for anything, uh, whether it's a dollar or five dollars or whatever it happens to be. And what I decided to do is everyone who makes a donation through the PayPal button there uh, on uh, the longviewpodcast.com page, uh, what I'm going to do is if your donation was a dollar, I'm going to enter your name uh, onto an Excel spreadsheet and I'm going to put your name there once um, and you will be eligible to win uh, shipped anywhere in the world at my expense uh, the copy of Mysterium that Velma is going to uh, be sending to me, I believe, this week. Um, if, however, um, you submit maybe a, a donation of $5, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to enter your name five times onto that spreadsheet. And then once it's done, let's say I have uh, you know 236 entries, um, uh, 236 rows, as it were, in the spreadsheet, then what I'll do is I'll go to random.org, which is a kind of a standard random number generator, and I'll ask it to pick a number between 1 and 236, hit the button, and whoever pops, that's the person who's going to win the copy of Mysterium shipped anywhere in the world. So 
If you would like to help out and possibly uh, win a chance to uh, uh, win this fantastically intriguing game, you know, this is kind of the first game that's taken that engine uh, that is so much beloved in Dixit and applying it in a different situation. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a few acres of snow. Let's take deck building and apply it in a different situation. Or Mage Knight, let's take deck building and make it part of this larger thing. Well, this is really kind of taking that Dixit engine and applying it into a larger kind of social deduction game. So it looks like it's really intriguing, looks like a lot of fun. So um, that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to run this drive for two months. So basically, um, you know, there's going to be four times that you'll have to hear me mention this. And uh, I, I'm going to try and keep all of the future segments much shorter than this. This is just me kind of initially explaining it. And so uh, this episode and the next uh, three episodes, you'll hear me mention it after that two month period, then I'm going to announce the winner. Uh, I'll announce it over the guild. I'll also announce it in the show. So that would be the fifth show. So we've got four shows, uh, this being the first one, the fifth show, I'll announce the winner. So, uh, and I'll do that right at the beginning. So if it happens to be an episode uh, that's featuring a game that you're not super duper interested in, perhaps you can certainly listen to it. I won't bury it somewhere in the show so that, you know, you, you have to listen to uh, a whole segment. I'll put it right at the beginning. We'll announce the winner first thing. So thank you very much uh, for being patient with me and kind and listening to this little spiel. Uh, I will try to, uh, you know, like I said, keep it much shorter in the future. I appreciate your support, whether you donate or not. Um, I appreciate uh, the listening. I appreciate uh, the the votes uh, for the uh, uh, Board Game Geek Awards that just came through. Uh, It's really been most gratifying. And so uh, that's pretty much it. That's going to be the supporter drive for 2015. And thank you very much for your support. Uh, Please just go check it out at uh, thelongviewpodcast.com. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and tonight I am very pleased to be joined by a special guest, Joe Salen, um, which is Joseph Salen, uh, spelled J-O-S-E-F, uh, Salen on Board Game Geek. And Joe was nice enough to reach out to me a while ago, probably a couple of months ago, and said, hey, I would love to do an episode about my favorite game, Terra Mystica. And I said, you know, I love that game. I would love to do it, but I'm totally book solid right now. Can you ping me in a little while? And I was really grateful that Joe didn't forget. And he sent me an email message about a week or so ago. And we have finally been able to set up a time and get together. And so, Joe, I want to say thanks very much for uh, getting in touch with me and for agreeing to be on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, big fan of the podcast. Been listening to it ever since I got to the point in the hobby where I was fertile ground for it. It's it's not right away, but believe me, once once you're there, it's wonderful. Um, enjoying listening to them, and I, I looked up and down to all the different episodes, wanting to listen to an episode on Terra Mystica, and I thought that is what we need to do. So thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Uh, I appreciate it, and uh, yeah, you know, it, it's great. Uh, your story mirrors a lot of other people that I've talked with who've said they were looking for an episode about their favorite game and didn't find it, and uh, why not you, right? And and so I think that's uh, wonderful, fantastic, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with me tonight. So uh, Terra Mystica is a really interesting game. This is one that was really big. It made a big splash, and it's not just because of uh, the, the weight of the component 
components. Um, although, you know, when you, when you when I first got that box, you know, I kind of was like, ooh, you know, I get I get really geeked out by a, an extremely heavy box uh, for a game. And Terra Mystica, boy, that was a beast of a box. This one came out in 2012 and uh, plays two to five players. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize. But uh, the designers are uh, Jens Drogmuller and uh, Helg Ostertag. Um, so uh, these are the designers who came out with this game. I think this might have been their first game, if I'm remembering correctly. And boy, this is a, a good one. It is currently ranked number two on uh, Board Game Geek uh, in the rankings. Strategy game rank of two as well. Um, and this thing has been rated over 11,000 times. So this is not just a little drop-in-the-bucket kind of a, a game. So even though it's relatively new... Um, it has been around long enough and it has a dedicated enough following that uh, I think it was totally uh, prime for an episode here on the show. So uh, thanks for agreeing to be on, Joe. And what I'd like to do is ask you first, what is it that kind of got your attention about the game? When did you first hear about it? And uh, what was your first experience with it? Well, um, I've kind of gone through some stages in the hobby. I've been playing now for a solid two years. Um, and then before that, every, everything's kind of, uh, I guess, the dark ages, where occasionally <laughs> we'd play a game that was worth something, you know. And then and then Settlers of Catan was kind of like the renaissance. And, and now we're we're moving on to the advanced stage. And, and um, the Terra Mystica was a game that was suggested at a game group I was at. And uh, the... The Board Game Geek rank had really attracted me to it, as well as the fact that I was starting to finally realize that a lot of the people that I had really put a lot of my um, board game advice, you know, started taking board game advice um, from, had different opinions than mine. And because um, this is one that has definitely got some people that uh, are not complete fans of it. There, there, there are a lot of people that 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 say a lot of negative things about it. And um, I wanted to, to play it and see what I thought. And, you know, it was the the wood pieces, the <laughs> the artwork. That, there's, yeah, that is a wooden block there. You're buying a log when you buy this game. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> and it's got some nice colors to it. The uh, there, there was just... The the thing that never really did attract me about it was the fantasy theme. I I personally could either take it or leave it, but um, I've I've really learned how that's that's so central to the the way that they've kind of structured the game that the theme just it serves the gameplay very well. Um, but really, my introduction with it was was a, a friend in a board game group suggested it, and I was just all over it, and I thought. Um, I thought I was having a hard time getting anything heavy to the table, and when somebody suggested that, I thought, "Oh, sure, you know, I want to play. I want to get into the the heavier things." And and uh, that's kind of been my my uh, never turning back moment. It uh, everything from since then has been if if I hear of a game and somebody says, "Oh, it's complicated," I think. Wonder if I'd like that. <laughs> All right, so this this might have been the first game that you tried that uh, you would classify as a heavier game. Yes. Uh, I would say it was the first truly heavy game, um, save a few, like, like I don't know how heavy you would call, I, I guess the, it's the first heavy strategy game that I played, and, right. and I make a difference there between a strategy game and a game that just has a ton of rules, but still kind of boils down to how well you roll a dice. Right, right, yeah. 
no, I think that's a that's a fair statement. And I was just kind of intrigued by the comment that you made, Joe, which was, you know, you you kind of were taking advice from a, a certain group of people, and then at at one point you kind of decided you were maybe not going to listen to them, and you decided to kind of take a chance on something a little different. And so I'm assuming that uh, what that means is that some of the games that you had played uh, earlier would have been maybe perhaps on the lighter side or, or something of that nature, and that this was kind of a foray into deeper, darker waters, yes? That would be exactly what happened. And, uh, I mean, it was a, just a great starting moment. My, my previous game experience, I mean, I was, I was uh, watching a lot. The way that I got into the hobby was uh, actually a top ten list by Tom Bassel on the Dice Tower, so I really owe him an awful lot. Um, and, and, uh, it was Tom Vassell's, uh, opinions and, and, and just this introduction to this world of board games that got me so interested. And for the first part of my board gaming, uh, my interest in the board gaming hobby, I was, I was just, um, picking up games that I saw that I knew Tom Vassell had high opinions of. And that served me right in a lot of different situations. And I can't thank him enough for that. But, um, there was a lot of times when I shut some doors and thought, oh, you know, I don't think I'm ready for that or I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm going to like, you know, sitting around and and uh, staring at a board and 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 uh, it being so complicated that everybody is taking a while on their turn and and um, really Terramistica is where I stopped I stopped being so I guess afraid and 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 thinking of those as thinking of complexity as something to be wary of and started to think of complexity as something where if it's going to get a large following and it's complex, then that must mean that, that when you do finally sink your teeth in, there's a lot more there um, than there might be in, in, in a much lighter game. Though that's not always the case. Um, that's the thing I'm currently finding as I, as I continue to explore the world of heavier games. Right, right. And, you know, I think that your experience mirrors a lot of, of people's experiences and that kind of intimidation factor um, of, you know, looking at these kind of uh, heavier games, you know, these larger games. There, There is certainly an intimidation factor there. I, and I think that that's true for a lot of different games in the hobby. I mean, you know, some people who are looking perhaps at diving into role-playing games for the first time, you know, you look at these volumes of books that you're supposed to go through and be <laughs> familiar with or, um, you know, even Magic the Gathering, uh, you know, if you go to a local game store on a night when it's like Friday Night Magic and people are playing competitively, it, it, it you know, people get like upset and stuff. Like <laughs> they take it extremely mm-hmm. seriously. And so that can be kind of like a little bit of a barrier to entry. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there are certainly games, you know, those traditional war games, um, you know, the hex encounter with these tons of cardboard chits, you know, people look at that and they're like, Ooh, you know, I, that, that's going to be deeper waters than I want to go into. But sometimes when you, you try it, you discover that there's, there's a real attraction there. And the reason why these games are so popular, despite their complexity is because of their complexity. And I think that that's a, that's a really interesting point that you made there. Um, Terra Mystica, for me, kind of really mirrored a lot of what you said. You know, I'd heard a lot of great things about it. Uh, I had the opportunity to play it at a friend's game day for the first time, and it almost completely put me off the game because I was uh, uh, playing it. Uh, we played the full five players for our first game, and oh, um, oh yeah and and we were playing with i'd say two or three people that were definitely analysis paralysis kind of prone people <sighs> and so what would happen is like i you know i always kind of like to say uh to, to friends and and family and whatnot when, when i'm playing a games i'm nothing if not decisive it's very rare 
that I lock up. Um, I, I don't know that what I do in a game is is always the best move, and by my win-loss record, clearly it's not. But <laughs> I kind of just go with something. I, I usually have a pretty good idea of what I want to do, and it's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, sometimes it works out, and sometimes it certainly doesn't. But I, I don't really seem to suffer from AP. There are some times when I'll apologize to people, like, oh, wait, you know, I'm really locked up on this one. But for the most part, I'm pretty decisive. The gentleman that I was playing the game with the first time I played, I would take my turn, and it took me probably all of about maybe 45 seconds, a minute, to take my turn. And then I could go and have a sandwich. I'd go play another game. I could I could have a drink, and then I'd come back. Is it my turn yet? No, no, you know. And so I think that that first game of Terra Mystica probably took close to five hours. And I was like, I'm never going to oh. play this game ever again. Ouch. And then later I ended up, you know, kind of – uh, having the opportunity to get it, and I was like, you know, I, I think the game was cool. I just, I wonder if it was just the people. And so I, on a lark, I bought it and uh, brought it in, and I really liked it. My wife liked it, um, which is always a good sign because she's my my primary gaming partner. And if she mm-hmm. likes a game, it'll it'll hit the table. If she doesn't, it probably means it's going to get traded or sold at some point in time. Um, and so she liked it. I liked it. We introduced it to uh, some other people in our group, and they really took a shine to it. So uh, I was really glad that I didn't let that first experience kind of uh, drag me down. But uh, the reason I'm bringing that story up is because there's a lot of people that I talked to that had a very similar experience with Terra Mystica. Was your first, uh, what was your first play like? First play, um, there was one uh, guy at the group who owned the game and um, had played it once before, I believe. And he taught it to uh, four of us. It was also a five-player game. And um, my first game was kind of like my first game of many heavies. I was trying to make sure that I was taking my turns quickly. And and I was comfortable with letting my mistakes surface well after I'd made the move to avoid, you know, sitting there and trying to – anticipate too much. I think that's what where a lot of people get hung up and they're scared of the long games is that is that you just can't go into that first game thinking you're going to be uber competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you can just allow yourself to make mistakes and realize later on why and just attribute that to, you know, I'm learning the game right now. It's, right. it's fine. You've got to go through a learning phase. And so we were all kind of going through that together. Um, my first play of the game was not particularly amazing but i definitely enjoyed it enough and enjoyed what was going on and enjoyed the all of the different variability um i also really enjoyed the lack of random um there is there is no random once you set up the game there is there is a random setup in certain extent to a certain extent but there is no random once the game gets going and and uh, i i can't tell you jeff i, I think i i saw your your tweets here recently about clash of cultures and I love that game, but if you are going to flip a card every turn in, in a heavy game or roll a die, there is something that just dies within me, that strategic <laughs> fire. And I'm sitting there thinking hard, I'm thinking hard, I'm thinking this is going to work. And then and then I had a similar experience to you. I, I did the math, and I had two dice rolls in a row once in, in Clash of Cultures at the end, and there was a 1 in 121 chance I was not going to win the battle, and I lost. <laughs> So that's never happened to me in Terra Mystica. Right. Every, I, I like being able to look back at the game and think, you know, I, I, if my score is low, it's because I made a mess of that game. Right. Um, and 
there it is an engine building game and it is a beautifully visual representation of an engine in front of you um, the components do a wonderful job of showing you that engine and and your first game or two I would just I would just suggest you know play to get as much stuff as you can in the game don't worry about the points um, it's fun it's fun to get you know just to collect all that income and think about what you're gonna do with it and then you realize that you're you're at half the half the points of the advanced players, but but at that you know don't worry about it. Don't think about the score track, and and you'll avoid that analysis paralysis that can totally cripple a first play of a game. Yeah, yeah, I I would have to uh, agree with you on a lot of those points. I mean that's something that, um, you know, nice thanks dog. <laughs> I'm gonna try this again here in a second. Are you done scratching those enormous ears? Are you done? Stop it. Lay down. Lay down. Don't shake the ears again right in the middle of what I'm talking. Stop it. Haley, knock it off. Good Lord. Stop. All right, here we go. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned um, about playing it with your wife. And, and, and I wonder, I've never played it two-player, and I still haven't introduced it to my wife. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, mm-hmm. But you, I think there's a lot to be said about what you said. You know, when, you're li- when your wife likes a game... Yeah, um, and the suburbia game, and then and then its new iteration, Castle Mad King Ludwig. That yep. thing, I'm seeing it hit the table. We play the app all the time, and it really is. You know, I enjoy it enough, and and she gets so much enjoyment out of it that it's just an easy choice. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let me see. I want to. Yeah, sorry, six. back to no, what no, you're no, saying. no. I'm, I'm to... trying to think. No, 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 no. Uh, that's fine. Uh, oh yeah, okay. Now I know where we are. All right, here we go. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. And, and this is something that, you know, I think is just a valuable lesson in board gaming in general. And, and you really very eloquently stated it, which is, you know, don't try to grok the game on your first play. I mean, this is something actually I'm on my wife about a lot. Um, you know, she really has a difficult time of just kind of winging it. You know, she really likes to kind of think about it and consider and have a plan. You know, she likes to kind of have, as she calls it, a path. You know, she wants to know, like, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? And, you know, I'm sitting there with her and I'm like, just do something. Just just, just do something. Don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's the first play. You know, and she's like, well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And I'll look at her and I'll be like, I don't know either. I've never played this game before. Just do something. I mean, neither of us really knows. But I think what it really boils down to is it boils down to personality type. And, and some people are just not comfortable just kind of doing things because for them, I think it feels random. It feels kind of like, well, why am I doing this? Why am I engaging in this activity if you just want me to kind of randomly do stuff that I don't really understand what its implications are? That's mm-hmm. stupid. You know, I want to know what I'm trying to do. I want to know what the goal is. I want to know what the point is. I want to know if this is a good thing to do. You know, she'll say that. You know, I don't know if this is the right thing or the good thing. And it's like, don't worry about it. But it's very difficult, you know, because you do have people that are kind of on both sides of that. You have people who are like, hey, it's a learning game. It's a throwaway. We're just going to pull, as Joel Eddy says, we're just going to pull levers and push buttons and see what happens. And then there's... <laughs> Try that one in Space Alert and see yeah. how it goes. <laughs> it doesn't work well. And then, you know, there's people like my wife who just, who really, they don't enjoy that. It's, it's stressful, I think, for them. Like, they actually get stressed out about it. 
Um, and Terra Mystica is one of those games that can do that to you. Um, you know, so uh, each of us, interestingly enough, we had that kind of long first play. We had that kind of difficult first play. But I think both of us kind of recognized that there was something there. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just take a, a quick minute for people out there who haven't had the chance to play this game. Can you, as best as you can, in a few minutes here, can you give us just sort of a general overview of the game, um, you know, and, and just kind of a general idea of, of what it's about and, and the basic systems of the game? I'm not going to ask you to get full on into the magic bowls yet. That might come later. But for right now, just kind of the, the general overview. Would you uh, be up for doing that, Joe? Certainly. Um, I like to introduce Terra Mystica as if you took all of the uh, all of the things about Catan that people enjoy after their first or first few plays um like expanding across the map and and collecting resources and then you took the random out of it and made it a strategic experience um that is i think what Terra Mystica boils down to and you add variable player powers really i think that 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 the presence on the map and the way that your different buildings are and uh, are going to collect different types of resources, boil it down to that. But the, the premise of the game is that everybody is, a, is a, a race of fantasy, you know, your fantasy trope beings, and, and what you're trying to do is gain the most points through manipulating your own personal economy, which you can do by building and upgrading um, uh, more, more things and more types of buildings, um, and, and also, you're going to be out on the board and trying to block off other players or kind of get in their way when it's appropriate. Um, but basically, throughout six rounds, um, and, and a rather dry sort of scoring system, you're going to be obtaining points. Um, and, and at the end of the game, whoever has been able to work their economy and milk the most out of what they can do uh, round to round by getting round bonuses as well as fighting for end of game. Uh, the, the total size of your board presence will be measured up. How many things can you, you know, quote unquote ship to? Shipping is an interesting advanced topic that I didn't really fully understand until a few games in. Um, after the end of the game, though, you'll have whoever has the most points is going to win. And uh, really what the, the, the main thing that a lot of people get attracted to on their first time is that there are, uh, in the base game, there are 14 different races, and uh, you could have, uh, and, and there's seven different colors, so you, you kind of have to choose one of the two races for a color, um, but these go from any, anything from um, halflings, you know, inspired by like the hobbits, to uh, there's witches and, and elves, and one thing I think that's hilarious about Terra Mystica, and one thing that really characterizes it for me, is is the story on the front cover of the rule book. Have you had a chance to read that story, Jeff? <laughs> you know, I read it a long time ago, but uh, I, no, I, I I don't recall it. I, I just remember thinking, oh, this is like something Ignacy would kind of do. It's it's hilarious to me because what you've got is you've got these chaos magicians, which sound like something you know where they're patching an evil plot. And, and they're complaining about the witches invading their territory. Except, lo and behold, the old, wise chaos magician speaks up from the back of the group and says, Wait, we shouldn't attack them. We can trade with them. And, and I think that that kind of sums up what you're doing in the game, is that you take all these races that are, are people are normally used to seeing in combat and in battle, 
and and everything is strictly economic. There's no destruction in this game. There's no the only thing you can really do is get there first. And 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 it, it, along those lines, it is a true euro. There is no um, a true euro game, meaning there's there is just no direct conflict yet as a as a part of the game. But but the player interaction is extremely high even without any direct conflict. And that is really what, what draws me in about it and, and it, what I enjoy about every play. Well, thanks for that overview and, and kind of explaining how the, the game works and the basic systems of it because, you know, uh, it really is an interesting kind of animal because, as you said, there's no real kind of direct conflict, but there can be hurt feelings in the game quite often, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it has to do with that board presence. So, you know, because what you're trying to do in the game is is each of the races has a sort of favored terrain. You know, like where they prefer to live. I, I, the witches, I believe, like to live in the forest. Uh, the merfolk like to, you know, live in sort of like a, a, a swampy region, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and, well, the riverlands. The yeah. riverlands, um, yes. And I totally missed that. Do you want me to go into that kind of a little bit? No, like the... no, no. That's okay because okay. you know what 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 I'm what I'm driving at here is is just to augment what you already said, which is. You know, you're, you're trying to kind of expand. And the way you expand is you first have to make the uh, terrain favorable and acceptable to you, something that you can use or something that you uh, can live in. And so, uh, you know, as you expand, it's a very deliberate action. It's not something that you can do easily. It's not something that can be done quickly. And so the spread across the board in this game is usually pretty easy to see where people are going um, and what directions would be easiest for them to expand into because uh, one of the neat, really uh, cool systems of the game, at least in my opinion, is is this this notion that there are some terrains that are easy uh, easier to uh, uh, change into something else, um, but there are other terrains that are going to be much more difficult. So if you have a uh, you know a, a swamp kind of an area to try to turn it into a mountain region is going to be extremely difficult. You're talking almost opposite ends of the spectrum, and you know. To change, you know, like a, a forest into a desert. Um, so to change the regions requires uh, a lot of effort and a lot of work. And this is symbolized in the game just by, I think they call it shovels, right? So it's like the number of shovels, which is kind of like the number of people that you have to kind of set out to go and terraform um, this particular area to make it a suitable habitat for you, uh, is an extremely resource intensive kind of thing. So players kind of, it's not difficult to see where people are going to want to go, and so therefore it's not difficult to interfere with people. It's not difficult to get in their way, and as you said, it's a wonderfully passive-aggressive kind of conflict, but it's conflict nonetheless. I mean, you can really box somebody in, you can really disrupt their plans, and really disrupt that point engine that you're talking about, but at the same time, this this is this to me was one of the most brilliant parts of the game, and I'd be curious what, what your opinion is of it, is that the game rewards you for coming into close contact with the other players because everything that I just described to you, you would think then the goal of the game would be to turtle. I'm going to go to some area of the board where no one else is and no one's going to mess with me and I'm going to do my thing and if I can do my thing better than she does her thing and he does his thing, then I'm going to win. But the game doesn't reward that. The game actually rewards you 
uh, for being in close proximity to each other, uh, bringing these certain types of buildings that you have. You have settlements and you have kind of these markets. Um, and and when, when you place, uh, when you build these kind of markets, um, am I remembering that right, Joe? Is it markets? It's, they're called dwellings and then trading posts. I trading called them posts. settlements and okay. cities for the longest time because if you've played Settlers of Catan, it's the same little pieces. <laughs> exactly. It's and like those generic the pieces. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you build that, that trading post, right, that, that market, whatever you want to call it, um, if you build it kind of off on your own somewhere, it's incredibly expensive. It takes a lot of resources to build, but if you build it next to somebody, oh, well, then it's really cheap because that's simulating the economic gain of trade, right? Well, doing mm-hmm. that kind of makes it advantageous for you to be near other people, which only increases the interaction and the conflict that exists in a Euro game, which is very unusual. So uh, what would you say about that whole So, Do you agree with me on that or, or do, you, do you think I've missed something there? I think that what you've just gotten into is really the genius of the game. Um, it could turn into just um, this is my corner of the map, and, and whoever chose the best corner of the map first would have, you know, there'd be a real benefit to, to when you just kind of place your 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 starting cities um, or your starting uh, dwellings. Here, you got me calling them cities again. <laughs> um, that was all part of my evil plan. All right, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the dwellings, though, that you – when you place next to another player, you're going to be rewarded. And and the thing is, the way that upgrading works in the game is that everything that you upgrade must start as a dwelling and then upgrade to a trading post. So that is a necessary step in the upgrade tree. And you're not going to be able to escape it. So anything that you do out on your own, you know, you want to have a little clan of your, your ice maidens out there in the middle of nowhere, wonderful, but it's going to take you a lot more. You're going to have to find a way to, to accumulate a lot more gold um, than you would otherwise. And so that forces players into this sort of uh, playing next to each other and starting next to each other. And um, there's this really leads us into the, in my opinion, really the hook of the game for me, which is the magic in this game. The way that this game uses magic um, is is another way that it rewards being next to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, you know, before we get into the magic part, though, because that is one of the most fascinating parts, Joe, and I and I'd like you to really kind of describe uh, that whole system, that whole bowl system, and and really how it's it, and oftentimes it's all about just basically buying yourself extra actions. Um, mm-hmm. But but before we get into that, you mentioned this upgrade tree, and for people who aren't familiar there, um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more? Because you know we don't just have the uh, the the dwellings and the uh, markets, uh, but we also have temples and fortresses and all these other pieces. So, can you tell us a little bit more about all of those and and how that works? Because I seem to remember there, it's really interesting because as you build a type of building, you're actually putting back one of the other pieces, which actually is affecting your economy. And that was another really interesting part. But it's, you know, honestly, it's been a little while since I played the game. So I'd rather defer to you to have you explain that. So can you talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind? Sure. Um, well, in the game, the the main mechanic that you've previously described is, is being able to change the land type to, to suit the... Uh, essentially, it's the color of whatever race you are. Um, the you know if you if you're a red race, you're going to need the red tile, and and there is like a theme behind each one. Um, but but you're going to use workers to do that, 
And and every time that you build a new settlement or, or dwelling, you're going to be getting a worker during the income phase of the turn. So the game is played over six rounds. You're going to collect income only at the beginning of the round. So if I build a dwelling during one round and I keep it until the start of the next round, I'm going to get a worker for that. The dwelling, you know, the dwelling produces a worker. Workers live in dwellings. However, if I choose to upgrade that dwelling, I have to place that dwelling back on my player mat and then put out whatever building I'm upgrading to, which in this case would have to be a trading post. And that's instead of getting me a worker, it's going to get me gold and and, uh, magic movement. But the gold is used for different things in the economy. And, And gold is something that it's a resource you usually need to have a lot of. And it's not useful for anything except making large purchases, but you have to have a lot of it to do anything. And and one of the big problems that new players run into is they make moves without realizing how it's going to affect their economy. Because it is an economic engine building game, and you have to know how to adapt your economic engine to obtain the most points round by round based on what your opponents are doing, based on what the bonus tiles are telling you you need to go for to get points, and also based on on how you're going to achieve the end-of-game scoring bonuses. So, you know, one thing I've seen, um, my younger brother, um, who's not a very heavy uh, board gamer and is getting a little bit more and more into the hobby, he played Terra Mystica with me once and thought it was, you know, it was all right. It was his first game. He was really confused. Then he played once as um, the engineer's race. And the engineers have a really interesting economy because, uh, you know, they're engineers. They need less. His problem was he never considered how that economy would be affected by the choices he made in the game. And he made a crippling decision to um, spend an exorbitant amount on upgrading his ability to change lands without thinking about how that money that he was spending, those workers, the the other um, forms of income he was spending, were not going to be coming back through the action that he chose to take. So every time you take an action, you can't just think, how many points am I going to get? You have to think, how is this going to affect my economy for later rounds? Absolutely, yeah. Um, And and you're right. And it's that interesting push and pull that this game does. You know, a lot of these kind of games, you are building your... as you said, you're building your economic engine, right? You are ramping your economy up, 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 up. But in this game, especially in the early part of the game, I'd say the first third of the game, you really feel sometimes as though you're taking that one step forward, two step back kind of thing. And what you're really trying to do is manipulate it in such a way that you're taking two steps forward and one back but you're gonna take one back you're never Mm -hmm. gonna be able to just go forward you're never gonna be able to just uh continue to gain 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 you're gonna be giving something up you have to give something up to get what it is that you want you know whatever your goal is um the temples work that way as well i believe you have to uh from a market you can upgrade to a temple or a fortress and so you have like a fork there and upgrading to a fortress is extremely expensive, difficult to do, and I believe there's a certain size that your settlement has to be before you can upgrade to, uh, before you can make the upgrade to a fortress. But the fortress is going to unlock sort of an additional sort of 
special racial ability that you will uh, then have access to. Um, sometimes it's a one-time benefit, a big splash, if I'm remembering correctly, but other times it's like an, an additional thing, an additional feature that your race is going to have. And so that is just like really crucial. So I've seen people try to race for that fortress. On the other hand, the temple is going to give you some other benefits. Um, uh, the temple is going to help you with uh, your magic production, if I'm remembering correctly, and... Um, it- it I'm depends. sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Go no, ahead. No. Sure. I, just just a little point of um. I th- I think that what you're thinking of with the um the the size requirements is for forming a town. The fortress generally is is a fairly expensive piece. Yes. And it and it is very unique to the to the races. Um. And you, and your temple um is is cheaper than that. But your fortress can usually be built without any other pre-existing requirements. Um. It's just it's just expensive. And uh, it, it can be it, – it's really interesting. The, the temple is another way to go, and it's going to give you the income of a priest. Right. Which the priest is the – there's three different forms of income in the game. Um, and and at, at any time, the highest can be turned into the middle, which can be turned into the lowest. So you, you can have um, – and, and those are in order, priest, worker, gold. Right. So gold is the thing you need the most of. Um, and, and, but it can never be turned into anything else. You can't use gold to buy workers. You can only turn a worker into gold, and that's usually not the best thing to do. But you'll find that some that that your people who've been playing a lot will not hesitate to turn a priest into a gold if it is giving them the crucial element in their economic engine, or if it's giving them the ability to um, put down their the the right buildings at the right time to earn them the amount of bonus points. Right. Right. No, thanks for clarifying that. Um, I, I, I missed that uh, a little bit there, so I appreciate you you correcting me there um, because I, I don't want to give people the wrong information here. Um, and, and the priests are also very important for these sort of... Uh, the, the game also has these uh, uh, kind of like cult tracks, right? They're like different... For lack of a better term, there are three different colored tracks, okay? And, <laughs> yeah, four of them. But yeah. uh, four of them. And, and those four colored tracks are loosely tied towards, like, fire and water and, you know, the, the different elements, okay? And one of the things that you're going to want to do is you're going to want to try and get priests on these tracks because the, the, the priests that you send to these temples, these elemental temples, as they continue to move up these tracks are going to gain you benefits. And those benefits are really important, but they're also important for end game kind of scoring. And so that's a whole nother sort of area that you really have to focus on. So the temples are going to help you with that area. But that's more of a, almost like a long-term investment. And, and it's also kind of, to me, and we'll talk about this a little bit later if you want to, it, it, the, the, the temple tracks almost feel like, like the appendix of the game, you know? Uh, to me, they're kind of, they're, they're there, they're important, but everything else is so tightly integrated into that board into what you're doing on your own player board and what's happening on the main board and then you have this sort of little area off to the side which is these temple tracks and sometimes they kind of can feel like they're there just to divert your attention and your resources from what you really want to do which is the stuff on the board you know i really would like to do this but man i can't let the other players get too much of an advantage on the 
these other tracks because if I do, that's going to bite me uh, at, at the end of the game, and I can't afford to do that. And so that's kind of like an area that I'd like to kind of circle back to uh, a little bit later because I'd like to hear what your opinion is about those kind of cult tracks because that if there's one area of the game that I've I've always been a little kind of meh about, um, and that would kind of be that area for me. But I recognize the fact that it's crucial if you're looking to play the game well. So we have all of these kind of actions that you're going to be taking during the game to change the landscape, to um, acquire workers and gain gold, build buildings, upgrade buildings, expand on the board. Uh, you're trying to, as you said, meet certain conditions that are on these uh, round-ending tiles that will gain you extra bonuses. Um, so there's all this kind of stuff going on. Um, and then the way to kind of break through, the way to break out is uh, by kind of getting to do some extra action, some extra things, and that has everything to do with the system of magic that's in the game. And this system of magic is really fascinating. It's one of the hardest things to teach people, um, at least I've found, you know, to try to get them to understand and visualize. It uses a sort of a three-tiered system. And the way I like to try to explain it, Joe, is I kind of like explain it like charging a battery. You know, you, you have to kind of charge your batteries and then you can use it, you know. Um, but once you've used it and you've drained it, now you're going to have to spend some time charging that battery again. And one of the things that, you know, I found fascinating was trying to manipulate that whole system, including um, a, a kind of what I've grown to think of as a veteran move of actually pulling some of those tokens from that magic bank intentionally <laughs> to cycle through more quickly. Um, really interesting stuff in that system. So can you maybe talk a little bit about the magic system, how that works, and uh, the, the, the things that you found um, that, that maybe people need to know if they're going to be playing Terra Mystica? Um, yeah, you'd mentioned that burning magic is kind of a veteran thing, and, and, and I suppose... Uh, um, a veteran thing. I mean, everybody at some point in the game will most likely burn some magic. Um, and for you, generally though, for your first few plays, you might not be burning any magic until the end of the game because um, essentially, what uh, the magic pool is 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 a way to acquire resources that you might not otherwise be able to get a hold of from your economy. Um, so it's kind of like this variable section of your economy, but it interacts. It's inter it's totally interactive. You aren't going to. Uh, you you can get magic movement from your own economy, um, but but uh, one of the other main ways to get magic movement is by having someone else on the board build in an area that is adjacent to the hex that you are on. So whenever I build, every single player that is adjacent to me is going to have the choice to take magic movement. And, and the reason I say the choice is that um, you are not always guaranteed to just be able to take magic movement for free. It isn't just like a free ride. Um, at the early game, if, if, you've, if you've got only one building next to me and it's the smallest building, that's a free magic. But at any other point in the game, if you are going to take magic and you have more than a, than a, than a single building of the smallest type next to it, you're going to have to pay for anything in addition to one magic movement in victory points. As you'd mentioned, it's like a battery. You're charging up a battery. So every race is balanced so that they have sort of a, a, a battery you know, charge that they start with. Um, and, and the way that you move magic is you always have to start in your lowest of the three um, bowls. 
and you'll move it from the lowest bowl into the next bowl, and then whenever the lowest bowl is empty, then you can start moving it from your middle bowl to your to your last bowl where it's ready. But it, the game also offers you some flexibility in that you can actually burn the magic from the second bowl by totally releasing one from the game. In the in the base game, every every single race starts with exactly 12. And so if you choose to burn a magic, you are now down to 11. Or or, or 10 or 9. You can burn as much magic as you want, but you have to have an equal number of other available magic in that bowl. Because basically what you're doing is kind of think of it as, you know, like shooting off magic to, to just to get your, your, your other magic ready to use. Um, and, and one thing that this does, and it really is, I think where the, where the real advanced players come into this is they know for their race what is the right amount of magic to keep in their bowls at all times. The right, because it's a closed... It's a closed system. The only thing you can do is is burn out of it. The advanced players will know that my my race is going to be moving this much magic. That's going to, to enable me to do this many things. Um, and and they're going to know that like for my race, if I go below six total magic pieces, meaning I've burned half of my magic, then I'm going to be starting to be in danger because I want to be able to to move more than that, or I want to be able to use it at different times. Um, and, and one of the main uses of this magic is to acquire other types, forms of income. Um, and you can do that at any time. There's, there is kind of a, a, an, an expensive um, conversion rate that you can use from your, your own board. So you're always able to use magic for something. You can always turn one magic into a gold. But when you use a magic into a gold, what you're actually doing is taking it from your available bowl and putting it into your lowest bowl. So you're going from bowl three to bowl one. Um, you can always do that for one gold. You can use three for a worker. You can use five for a priest. But that's pretty expensive. And so what the game does to kind of give a, even a more a, a more nuanced sort of interaction is there are six spaces available on the board. And each one has a certain magic requirement. And you have to have that magic available in your third bowl. And you can, you can always ready magic by burning magic if you don't have it yet available. But then you're going to have to use... For example, three magic or four magic or up to six magic to be able to take a special action or to be able to take um, a form of income. And once that is taken, nobody else can take that for the rest of the round. And a lot of times that'll be the first thing that happens in a round is somebody knows I, I've got my economy into a rut. I don't have any gold. There's a gold space out on the board, and there's only one, and so they'll be the first one to take it. And as soon as that gold space gets taken, you usually hear kind of a collective groan of, "Oh, <laughs> that is why true. did you do that? You don't even need that. You know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? I'm the one who deserves." Yeah. So that's the magic is the is in my opinion what keeps me coming back. It is it is totally interactive, um, and and it, while it is it is interactive on the board. You can also find ways to move it on your own. But really, if you're using your own board and you're trying to just get lots of magic movement, that doesn't make all that much sense for most races, especially in the base game, because you can just get the type of, of resource that you need from your board. Um, you know, Having like four magic movement might seem good, but when you think about it, you're, there's, there's an extra step in there. Four magic movement does not equal four gold. Four magic movement means I'm moving four magic from wherever available bowl it is, and it has to all that magic has to move again before it turns into a gold. So it's really a half of a gold if you think about it in that way. 
Yeah, that's definitely true, and and there's a, a definite cost, and and the cost is in the time that it's going to take you to kind of recharge that magic, and this is why it can be such a crucial decision as to when you're going to actually use it. You know, when you're going to spend that. Because you may not be able to completely recharge that and you're going to be missing other opportunities later. So there's an awful lot of analysis, you know, kind of strategic analysis that has to take place when you're considering your magic system, how you're going to spend it, what are the other players doing, what do they appear to be gearing up for. And so, you know, this is not just something that you do kind of willy-nilly. This is usually something that you're really carefully considering um, because, you know, the way the economy of that magic system works, um, you know, you, you can make a big splash. You know, you can spend everything in your bowl and get to do all this crazy stuff on your, uh, you know, on that round, uh, during that round on your turns. But then you're going to spend a while kind of rebuilding that. And, and other players who maybe have been a little bit more reserved with how they're using it um, are going to have more abilities to kind of uh, grab some of those tiles that you're talking about that are going to help them out while you're kind of sitting there, you know, waiting to kind of try to get everything reached charged um so you know new that player tip yeah new player tip do not sit with magic in your bowl if you have three or four magic um you need to be using it to be getting yourself a form of stable income because um, magic that sits in that available bowl is is it's kind of a it's it's potential it's all it is is potential energy and what you really need to do is is turn it into something that's going to give you um an earlier game kind of kind of like games like st petersburg early game you're really wanting to build your economy a lot right and yes you want to try to maximize points as much as you can but if you focus too much on points you're going to end up with what my brother did which was every turn he was getting this pathetic economy and while as the turn as the game goes on, the actions you take on your turn generally ramp up to the point where your last turn a lot of times you'll be taking, you know, maybe six or seven actions whereas your first turn, the first round you're only taking like or, or not your first round. First round's pretty big cuz they give you a good kind of a good like stipend, I guess, to to start the game. Right. But some of your turns you're only going to be taking maybe two or three actions, but my brother sat there taking one action a turn because he had his economy came to a grinding halt and he almost wouldn't play the game again with me. Because he felt like that, that just having that sort of pitfall there was enough to frustrate him into just giving up on it. Right. Do you feel that the game can be too punishing? Okay, that, that was another thing that you mentioned earlier is kind of... Uh, I, I think that if you look at the scoreboard, the game can be quite punishing. Um, because you will be able to see... Uh, especially if I teach this game to a new person, um, it, it's really not a game. It, it, it's, it's, it doesn't reward me enough just moving around the board. I mean, the, the game is... The, the way that you're playing the game is trying to get points. Everything you're getting in the game is points. And there isn't really a theme connected to those points. So there, it isn't rewarding for me, as an experienced player, to take it easy on the new person. Um, I, I kind of still have to be trying to get points because I'm, I'm playing against my, my own personal best scores, you know. Um, the, the, the new players, however, though, are never going to get hit with anything like in Agricola, you know, here, you couldn't feed your people. Here's a negative three. <laughs> I, I think that there's no negative points in this right, game. Right. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it, it does better with people in their first few plays than Agricola does. I think that's probably why it's climbed ahead of Agricola, um, even with as new as it is, 
is that is that you don't have to be at the top of the score track to still be able to enjoy, you know, when you get to place that stronghold. That stronghold is a significant piece of wood. It is it is a block of wood, and just the feeling of putting that on the board, even if you did it in, in the totally inappropriate turn to get you any points at all, and maybe you've done it, and your stronghold is one of those late-game, one-time point-gain things that doesn't going to do anything for you in the long term. You put it out there in the first turn, and you just sit there. You're proud of it, though. That's you know, right. You, that's right. You can't help but say, like, boom, when you put it on the board. <laughs> it's a picture-taking game. You see your – and the way that it develops organically throughout the playing of it, you just see all the different colors. You see how, how – when people terraform, um, that's what they call, you know, changing the, the, the land to suit your race. When people terraform, they'll, they'll, they'll be kind of changing the makeup of what the board generally looks like. And, and so you'll see these colors spreading throughout the board. The game is just so so colorful. In addition to having a color, you're, it's also like a terrain type. So you know you've got like like woods on it. Um, just really really pretty pieces. And I think that there's a lot to admire in the game. And then there's that extra plane. And I think that that extra plane is is where people kind of get divided on it. Um, where there are people who really just you know in, in terms of maximizing efficiency, getting into the engine building and. And, and the type of interaction in the game, um, the fact that, that the, the way you get points in the game is not really closely intertwined with the theme of the game um, is, is where I think a lot of people kind of kind of decide that, that, that it's, it's a game and, and they, you know, they might play it, but, but it's not like one of those where every single action that they take, they feel like they're crafting the, the thing that's going to get them off the cursed island or... Or the you know that they're that they're picking up an axe and, and taking a hack at a at a goblin or an orc. I mean you don't you don't get that feeling. It, it feels like you're trying to make the right decision for your personal race's economy to get the most points. Right, right. So where where do you fall on this? I mean, it sounds like you are assessing this game as not particularly thematic. And so, but but you're okay with that. So, you know, where do you fall on that? I mean, is this really just an economic game hiding in a sort of fantasy clothing? I think, personally, I think that there is a very strong theme in the game. And I think that they laid out the theme and the type of interactions that, that would be a result of the theme. Um, and, and I think that, that the, the way that you actually play the game, though, is is, is not ultimately as thematic as as the initial layout as the as the initial sort of um as 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 what you see at the beginning as you, as you're analyzing what your race is and how it does you know a lot of people as they there's a there's all the different double-sided boards they'll pick up the boards and they'll chuckle because they see that that the witches have this ability to just kind of airdrop you know fly on their broomsticks and go to any place on the map that they want to and and drop down a a building for free and that's you know that's those are witches it makes sense for them to do that the dwarves get points for tunneling you know for digging underneath things they don't they don't like building next to themselves they like tunneling underneath so you try to reach uh, sort of hot spots on the board that you're trying to get to by tunneling you know all your different races have these thematic intertwining in the way that they actually play but when you put five fantasy races together and you make a a truly competitive strategic heavy game where people can just sink their teeth into it um i think that i think that that's where the game start starts to become less about you know this is my race this is this is me being a goblin and it's more like this is me understanding 
the the pros and cons of of my team that I've been given, you know, like like a manager, and um, and understanding how to use those and 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 how to kind of uh, milk the most potential out of them at different points throughout the game. So I do think that that it's thematic. I think it has a very thematic setup. I think that the board is pretty. I think that it makes sense for the different races to be on, you know, dwarves inhabit mountains, um, and I think that the artwork is great for that. I, I, I think the player boards, to me, are just the most amazing thing that there is in the game because they, they introduce you to your race, um, they, they're very friendly and inviting, and they show you your different um, variable player powers. And the variable player powers are how the game is so thematic. Um, and, and, and I think the main, the main p- criticism people come with is that, is that they are expecting the gameplay round to round to continue to sort of introduce them to new, you know, like you're going to flip a flip a, a, a new tile and it's going to be, you know, this round everybody needs to 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 get water or this round everybody, you know, needs to needs to be at the river or something. But but I really think that 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 adding any sort of 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 extra theme could in some ways detract from from the heavy strategic qualities that the game has. Yeah, you know, I would be inclined to agree with you about that uh, because I, I I really do firmly believe that the races all feel very thematic in how they play. What's happening on the board doesn't look tremendously thematic, and I think that's where that disconnect uh, can come in. And I think your analogy of managing your team, almost like a sports metaphor, is very apt because you really are trying to maximize the abilities of the uh, particular race that you've selected. And that's really a huge part of the game. I mean, if you ignore, uh, for lack of a better term, your race's special ability or their kind of um, uh, niche in the game, you're, I, I'm pretty safe to say you're going to lose. You know, you, you really can't afford to give up that kind of an advantage if you're playing with other people who understand the game and how it works. And so I think thematically that really shines. I think the magic system to me feels very thematic. That really shines. But I think that the disconnect, at least in my opinion, comes from the fact that, as you said, it is all about points. You know, and you're playing on a on a board that looks like there should be something more happening there. Maybe some kind of overt conflict. You know, um, it, it almost looks like a small world board. And, and I think that's what we've been grown to kind of condition to expect. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a small yeah. world board. It's it's there's supposed to be conflict. That's what there has to be. And I think that's where this really kind of breaks down that barrier of of why does every fantasy game have to be this conflicting, you know, like, why is it thematic that these races are trying to kill each other? Why is it thematic <laughs> right. that, why is it always survival of the fittest thematic like that? Right, um, right, yeah. And I, and I think that, that creating this sort of, con, you know, every, every game is its own sort of controlled ecosystem. And, and the amount of control within that ecosystem, I think, can kind of dictate how much theme is going to come through. Um, and, and likewise, it dictates how much strategy and how much um, how much real you know strategic depth a game can have. Um, one of my favorite, very heavily strategic game or very heavy games is Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the, Adventures on the Cursed Island. Um, but the theme from that game comes through because you say I'm going to go do this, and then oh boy, 
you know, the the weather says no, or the you know the <laughs> right, right. It's, it, it, that's thematic. <laughs> or you like, fell it, and hit your head on a rock, and now you got a concussion, and you know, mm-hmm. or yeah, yeah put yeah. this little counter on your exactly, belly, right, and oh right. boy, if that card comes back up, I know what it's gonna be. <laughs> Dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah, right. And that you know, it's like the Oprah Winfrey show. You know, it's like look under your chair. What do you get? You get dysentery, <laughs> and you get dysentery. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, no, it, it, and the theme there is so strong you know i I agree i mean robinson crusoe is a fantastic game and it is incredibly rich thematically and complex and it's because of that sort of um uh uncertainty you know uh you know you you know what you want to go out and accomplish but you know you're not always going to be successful and the way the game is set up to uh give you more certainty for those of you who are looking to kind of like be maybe a little more controlling uh, by working together, but uh, if you want to go uh, go it alone, you run the risk of having something go wrong, and yet it's incredibly thematic because if you don't divide up and accomplish multiple tasks, you're not going to be able to succeed. You know, you can't always play it safe. And people have to go out. There's too many things. You can't just always work in teams. And the game really uh, explains that uh, very well through its mechanics and through the results, you know, through what happens during the course of the game. And Terra Mystica, you know, as you said, I think that the, it, it definitely does come through. Um, you know, but I, I've heard the charge against the game so often that it's an abstract, you know, that so much of what's happening is abstract. And I've never quite understood that other than looking at the board you know that main board uh, again i'm coming back to that i'm harping on it but i'm I'm gonna leave it alone i promise but that that sort of main board of you know we're flipping tiles we're terraforming and really it's just about root building and connections and um it, it really is an abstract you know it's not thematic it's not thematic but when you look at how as you said you brought up the dwarves and how they tunnel and i think of if i'm remembering correctly the merfolk you know, and how they can kind of use the rivers to kind of make connections that otherwise wouldn't necessarily be possible um, or legal, if you want to think of it that way, in, in, in the terms of the, the game yeah, rules. Yeah, they're the only race that can... Right, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, th- that actually kind of feels thematic to me. So, you know, I, I think this is one of those games, as you said, that not everybody is going to see it that way. But I don't know that anybody would argue your point that the game is highly strategic because of the amount of player control that there is you know that as you said there's really no random factors once the game starts so you know we've talked a lot about this you know that the overall goals of the game we talked about the board we talked about what you're trying to accomplish the different buildings uh the different races the abilities we talked about the magic let's now talk about this cult track thing because that that's the one area of the game that I'm not entirely sold upon. So what can you tell us about that cult track? And can you explain to people why it's so very important? And maybe uh, while you're at it, if you don't mind, Joe, touching on the cities, you know, the, the ability, uh, you know, the requirements for making a city and the benefits that you get from, uh, you know, turning your little collection of buildings into a unified kind of large city. Okay, yeah, those are definitely uh, two different things. Like, I can go to the cities earlier. That's a kind of an easy thing to explain. There's a certain requirement, and it happens to be a total building value of seven, um, which if I'm teaching you the game, I'll explain that more in depth. <laughs> the the total building value of seven, and then a total area of four spaces that are all 
connected directly. There's there's two different types of adjacency in the game, direct and indirect, and direct is what you need for a city, and indirect is what you need for the end game scoring for the largest network, um, which you can use things like shipping. Mermaids are unique in that they can actually form a city on a, uh, on a river tile. Uh, meaning they can have three things on the left side of the river and four and uh, th- three building values on the left side, which could be three different buildings or two buildings or just even one building because it goes up to three. Um, and then they could have four on the other side of the river and then be able to plop down a city tile right in the middle of that. Generally, your races are going to need to be directly adjacent, meaning they're going to have to bridge that river if they're there. Um, and once they reach that, that threshold, they automatically form a city. City tiles are a first-comes-first-served basis, and they offer you, lo and behold, points, as well as a form of income. And generally, the higher the points, the weaker the income, right. or the, the less, the, the less, um, uh, the less, uh, uh, what am I looking for here, sort of... Um, well, it's, it's that give uh, and take. Like, if you want the big splash for points, you're not going to get much, um, you know, in, in terms of income. Some of those tiles, I believe, uh, you know, give you gold. Some of them give you, uh, don't some of them let you cycle magic. I mean, there's different tiles, and, and mm-hmm. they're in different point values, and so... It's almost like a, a seesaw kind of a thing, you know. So high points, low income, high income, low points. And so the players have a choice uh, if you get there early enough to, you know, claim the tile that is going to do, you know, the best thing for you. If you've got a, a, a wonderful economy, you're going to go for the best points. If you're a player like your your younger brother uh, who was really struggling with his economy, he's probably going to go for the smaller point tile, uh, but something that's going to give him something that's going to help boost him and, and get him up and running. So I, there's definitely a real choice to be made there, yes? Absolutely. And yeah, I would say that, that as you get to be a more advanced player, you'll start making the choice that's going to get you the most long-term points, um, as opposed to you know, the, the short-term higher point value or the, you know, the short-term, um, I need this economically right now because otherwise I can't do this thing I wanted to do. Um, and a lot of times, newer players will choose the lower point values with larger economy things because they, they, they're just excited with, with playing the game. They're excited with, with the playing of the game without really worrying about the whole point conversion, you know, the way that at the end of the game we're going to have to kind of measure up and we have this sort of a dry way of doing it. Um, and, and, and I think that the cities are a great way of, of mimicking sort of your, your magic um, that's available, that, that's kind of available to collectively to the group, is that once somebody takes them, that's it for the game. Um, so so it's, there's, there's all these different types of sort of I got there first mechanics in the game. Um, and, and then you add to that the, the cult track, which is ultimately a sort of race to the finish. Um, and it is definitely the most heavily criticized part of the game. Um, and, and I think that, that a lot of times the people who criticize it um, have, have a valid point in that, that they're essentially just um, identical tracks that are each there specifically so that you just have another chance at, you, at, at, at jumping ahead of other people on it. Um, and it, essentially what it is is it's four different sort of uh, tracks that go from 1 to 10. And once somebody reaches the 10, nobody else can reach that point, and they will also score the largest bonus at the end of the game. There's also a bonus for a second and third place. Um, there's different colors. They do. They are tied to the elements, as you said. Um, nobody ever thinks about that so thematically, except for thinking at the beginning of the game, you know, I, I look at my witches, which I've talked about quite a bit, and I look at my mermaids, 
And my mermaids are going to start highest on the blue track, the, the water track, and then my witches are going to start highest on the white track, the air track. Um, and that's, that's really where the, where the theme comes in. Um, I think that the game tries to sort of, of keep its really happy-go-lucky, let's all be nice to each other, and, and if they get there first, oh darn, but we'll trade with them. Um, but I think it tries to keep this theme because I think that the cult track is really more of like, it's a place where you're sending your priest... Um, and, and I mean, they're quote unquote working there, but once you send a priest there, he's totally gone from your economy. You can never get a priest again. Um, and so I, I think of it as kind of like this place where you're sort of sacrificing your, your, your resources. Um, but it's not actually necessary to every single race. Um, like when, when my friends and I who have played the game, um, you know, well into I'm I'm well above 20 plays in in groups of four, and then I've played the the online AI many many times, um, probably at least that many if not more. Um, we will evaluate everybody's races at the beginning of the game and decide you know whether or not we think that race is going to be competitive on the cult track. And there are certain races that just don't need the cult track, or if you try to make them work on the cult track, they're going to they're just going to produce more for you on the board. Um, like if you take if you take a race like the halflings, which are really good at terraforming, and this is my, this is my first game of Terra Mystic. I played as the halflings, and I never really focused on there. I kind of did kind of a a potpourri, or you know, like a, where I just would take a little bit of this and 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 and, and a little bit of that, and um and and I never really went with any one strategy, and and that really in Terra Mystic a lot of times is 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 about the worst thing you can do, um, but it's not always. It's not always. Um, but as long as you're one step ahead of all your opponents and everything that you do, you're going to be fine. <laughs> but that's really what the cult track is. Um, it's also a way that you can keep continuing to move to cycle magic, um, you know, your variable resource. Um, because as you hit certain benchmarks, I believe it's at, at after you hit two, four, and like seven. Um, no, 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 it's six. Two, four, and six, I think you're going to be able to move either one or two magic each time that you cross those barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to kind of help you to jumpstart your economy that way because you are taking quite a big hit because you're just sacrificing something for end game points. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of races. I think that what, that what it really helped do was enable there to be more races on the map because there's only so many different types of ways that you can have races interact with each other and terraform. And, and I mean, you've got one race that jumps across the map. You've got a river and you've got races that cross it. You've got races that can dig. You've got races that can fly carpets certain areas around the map. Um, and I've only mentioned a few of them. You've got races that can, can get really cheap at terraforming. You've got races that can terraform everything as if it were the same thing. They don't have to worry about how far it is from them on their wheel. Um, you have, you ha- and, and then you've got uh, the, the option of having so much more variability of races because of this, of this ability to just kind of make a race that's going to be competitive on this sort of essentially um, multi, you know, multi legged race uh it, it's what it is it's 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 a way to really integrate more of those fantasy races into it and and they feel somewhat thematic because a lot of times the races that'll be good at that cult track are going to be your races like the cultists are good at that track like the the races that seem to have uh like more of a spiritual spirituality associated with them and and that's where it it starts thematic and then as soon as you see how it plays if you're expecting it to stay thematic, you're you're going to be most likely unimpressed with it. Right, right. Um, 
I, I would uh, I never really thought about what you said so I appreciate you sharing that because it makes a little bit more sense as far as the cult tracks open up more room for different races um, and so while I still feel at times as though it's a bit of an appendage um, I, I do think it seems like it's necessary for the reasons that you've stated um, so I, I think you did a great job of being an ambassador for the game there because I've always kind of been curious is like you know man sometimes I just wish I could ditch that um, but I think you've made it very clear um, that that's something that's really integral uh, to the game because you need to have more kind of opportunities to do things and more variation than just what can take place on that board given the systems that are in the game so uh, that's a that's an interesting perspective on that so I appreciate that uh, while we're talking about this room for races uh, there's one other area that I, I know I wanted to touch on with you which is uh, the idea of the expansion in this game you know so we already had sort of a ridiculous amount in the base game 14 and now the expansion I have not had a chance to play this um, but it's my understanding that it, it offers even more new uh, races and, and different things going on there so have you had any experience with the expansion for the game can you tell us a little bit about that Nearly my entire experience with the game, after about my first seven or eight plays, has been with the expansion. And, and there are certain things that I will never go back to in the original. Um, and there, there's some sort of mechanical, almost, um, I would say almost an upgrade, almost a fix. I don't want to call it a fix so much, but really it is kind of a fix. Because one of the first things I remember when I first started playing the game, one of the guys who had been playing a lot, and this is not during my first game. This is my third or fourth game. Somebody who had been playing the game a lot, and at this point he considered it his favorite game. One of the things he said, though, was, you know, play, you play the game to see how much fun you can have with the race that you are. Because not all races are created equal, and the, ra and the other races that are involved in the game are going to dictate which race is really going to be kind of your dominant species out there. Um, and and that's, kind of a, that's kind of an underlying issue with these variable player powers and the way that they interact with one another. Um, if you have one single race, and this might have happened in your game, Jeff, if you thought you know, that, the, that the cult track was something that, that since it got ignored, it was really a, a kind of just a runaway victory for somebody or something where you know, you're, all, all it is is just trying to slap each other around so that nobody gets many points from it, um, is, is there are certain races that if there's nobody else to compete with them on the cult track, they can easily capture all the cult tracks so that way they can focus more on, on getting points through, um, uh, expanding on the board and and uh, and other other means, but the the expansion adds something that I think is necessary, and and I think it needs to spread out to other games, and and that is it adds the ability to it, it adds a bag, and it's an obscenely large, well decorated bag that's hilariously see through because you're not supposed to know what you're drawing out of it. Nice, um, but it's nice. really nice. But it's it's like a white. Um, sort of linen bag, and it's got the Terra Mystica logo on it. It looks really great, but it's very, very colorful little chits that they made, and each one, there's one in each color, because what you do is you draw these out of the bag and you flip them, and then you auction off, and you're paying in points, and everybody starts with more points. You generally start with 20 in the base game. You start with 40 in the expansion, because you auction off. After you see all of the bonus tiles, after you see all of the um, round bonuses... After you see all the other races involved, you an analyze what you think you can do with that race, and then you bid that many points on it. So, you know, if I see five races out there and I see 
that the um, that the that the Giants are out there, and I think that the Giants are just going to have the strongest go at it based on what other races are there. That there's no other race that's really going to have much of a go at the board, and the Giants are just going to be able to walk all over it. Um, I can bid high on the Giants. Um, it, it lets it lets you sort of of balance the game for yourself, and I and I think that it is it is it is the way that they could balance it um, and and make each game competitive regardless of how advanced of a player you are. And, and yes, there's going to be that, that variability of what other people do and how it affects you. And I will tell you, the last time that I bid high on a race, I ended up finishing dead last. Right. But it still enabled me to play at that higher level where I didn't feel like I was limited by the race so much as I was limited by my choice and how much I was willing to bid for them. Um, another thing that it adds is, is the variable turn order. Now, um, a, a game... That's that's as high, very high on on Board Game Geek and designed by uh, Uwe Rosenberg, who also helped out uh, in the in the development of Terra Mystica, is Agricola, and and Agricola is you know all time one of the, one of the best games of all time considered by many people, and I am right on board with them. But there is one thing that just kills me about Agricola, and that's that if you're sitting to my right and you take that first player, I have all of these passive bonuses. Just because I, I am by you know just totally vicariously getting these things through what somebody else has chosen to do, um, and and that's the way that Terra Mystica was. That if you were the first person to end your actions, you get to go first in the next round, and then it just always goes clockwise. And that is something that just crushes me about these heavy strategy games. You you just simply when there's that much things going on, especially when you add that there's uh, it's in Agricola every single space counts in Terra Mystica you just got the six different spaces of magic, but a lot of times as soon as somebody goes there, that's it. Or if somebody takes something, um, if some if two people are racing to one spot, um, or they're both adjacent to it, one person gets there first because they happen to be second as opposed to fourth. That to me is just it's just a it's a it's a fault in the game. And so what you've got is you've got this board. Where after you've auctioned your race, you put your race symbol on there, and it shows you who's going to go in what order. And then as soon as you pass, you move it over, and you take the highest available spot that's that's left on the other side. So if I am the last person done with my actions in one turn, I'm also going to be the last person to go in the next turn. Right. It it makes perfect sense. There's there's no reason that this is that 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 Agricola with how many expansions it's had and how amazing of a game it is and how tight. Um, and, and punishing it is that it should be rewarding people for things they actually have no control over. And, and I think the Terra Mystica's expansion really helps it with that. So it sounds as though, you know, you really feel that this is an essential. It's not something that really should be optional. Yes? Yeah. Oh, I've totally, um, I, I still, I, I have a really hard time throwing anything away from my games. There's a lot of times I'll even keep the punch boards and put them underneath the, the plastic trays <laughs> just just in case. And a lot of times it helps it kind of sit even right, so that right. way things don't move around a lot. But um, I think I got that from the Francis Drake manual, by the way. It, it recommended I do that, and I've just done that forever. But um, I, I was about to throw out that player. It's a nice, big, thick. It's about the size of a stronghold, that, that orange player, uh, the first player thing. But I was just about to throw that out last time because it wasn't going to fit in the box because I will never play with, with the first player again. I mean, that thing is nice to circle to signal the first player. But, um, yeah, I, that board, first of all, it, your race is right up there, and it's a really pretty-looking – you know, the artwork in the game is very inviting, and I'm sure it's what attracts a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, but – but having that strategic depth is what it's all about. So there's those mechanical differences that I think are absolutely necessary. But what does the what does the new expansion add that is the most fun? And that is just what you'd mentioned earlier: the races. 
Um, the races in this game are what make it interesting, what make it fun, what make each game you play different. Like, if I play as a certain race, usually I want to play something else next. I mean, I don't care if, if that is going to be the most competitive race. I just want to see how much I can do. I just want to play differently. Because, you know, how many games are there where you can play 20 different ways um, and, and, and the differences are, are going to be subtle at times, and they're also going to be very pronounced at times. Like, especially when, you, when you're sitting there struggling to form your own city, and then the mermaid guy right next to you um, is able to connect his using that water tile, and you go, oh, if only I, you know, if, if only I could do that. Um, but the new races, every single one, without exception, does something. Um, or, or, let, me, let me play like this. There's six new races. And each one has a beautiful new type of terrain that is totally unique um, and cannot be changed, um, which is really interesting. You've got these volcanoes that will come on the map. And generally, if, if uh, any type of terrain can be switched from the base game. But once something's a volcano, it's always a volcano. And it's really pretty, pretty new map. It also adds a new board. Um, but these new races, there's, uh, I think, four of them, of those six, that uh, or there's at least five of them. There's one that's kind of traditional. But the other five are, each time you see somebody do something, if, if you're not paying attention, if it's your first game playing the expansion, you're going to be like, wait, what did you just do? <laughs> there is a race called the Shapeshifters. And as opposed to terraforming, they are going to change their home terrain. And so they want to be like other races, you know. They want to they wanna turn themselves into this. And so it's hilarious to see them on the board because usually you see the yellow color on top of the yellow terrain all over the board. But you see them all over the board. They're, they're, they're going to stay the same color, but they're going to be on all different types of terrain types. And then they're going to get points every time they switch their race. So they're going to sometimes just do it for the sake of getting the points um, and, and then trying to, you know, be more competitive with other races. Um, you've got races that use magic. Like the, I talked about burning magic, and we, we talked about how that's something that you do that's so unheard of in the, in the base game. Once you're, you start with 12, and that's, all the, that's the max you're ever going to have. In the expansion, you've got races that are actually taking magic out of their bowls to terraform. You've got races that are taking magic out of their bowls. The shapeshifters take magic or move magic to, um, to change their race. And, and also, very thematically, the shapeshifters, whenever somebody next to the shapeshifter decides, yes, I'm going to take the magic for you building next to me, they get to take a free, a new magic from the box and wow. place it into their available pool. It is such a strong ability. And I saw the guy that I play with, um, and, and I'll give a shout out to him. His name is Andy. And he, he said he was jealous of me get, being able to get on here. I got him hooked on the long view um, um, just recently. But, but he is, I saw him play the shapeshifters and it was hilarious to see him play the shapeshifters because he would be like, I'm going to, it seemed like he made his decisions of where he was going to build out on the map based on there being at least one person with only one settlement next to him because it's a free magic. Right, right. If you build next to him, they get a free magic. So it's like, you want to take that free magic? And he just, he felt like <laughs> such a drug pusher in this game because he's like, you're you going to take that magic? And so they say yes, and he's like, okay. So he gets a free magic and puts in his available bowl. That's one race. Right, right. You've got You've got races that are moving up and down on the cult track to terraform. Like they start at, at like three or four on oh, interesting. all four cold tracks, okay. but they all but right. they're up and down. Each one's just like a level going up, um, and you know these new races are just are are so interesting. Um, the races in the base game, there's probably three or four of them that you could say that this one plays more or less like this one. 
But none of those races in the expansion could you say that about anything else. Um, well, with the exception of maybe one. But, I mean, there's really interesting ones. There's there's race, there's race a race there. Um, we talked about how hard it is to get magic. And the new uh, Yeti's race enables you to, when, when you place their stronghold, you gain a special ability that you can take any previously taken um, uh, magic uh, on the board, any, any, any magic activity. So the things that you're generally fighting for and trying to be first, you can still take that after other people have taken it. And not only that, but your passive ability that you start the game with is that everything is one cheaper when you do that. So the Yetis don't have to worry so much about their economy, and I think they're a great new person race as a result of that. Right, right. And that is nice because there are some of the races that I would definitely say are much more kind of uh, uh, friendly for new players. And, you know, that they might not always end up being ultimately some of the most competitive, but they're relatively straightforward um, and, and they're something that, that people can really sort of latch on to. So I always like to hear that there that there are definitely races like that um, in the base game and, and that, you know, there's also some, uh, you know, maybe a, a more traditional kind of simpler ones in the expansion as well. But it's also nice to hear that all of the other races are not just rehashes, you know, retreads, uh, you know, recombinations of existing kind of racial abilities. You know, you have something completely different here. And it sounds like it might make, uh, you know, that cult track a little more relevant. Um, I, I do want to also... Um, circle back to what you said about the uh, bidding for the races. I mean, I think that's brilliant. Uh, that's something that I know has been around for a long time in the wargaming community. Um, you know, mm-hmm. often you're talking about asymmetrical forces or, you know, uh, a, a particular group that's going to start in a better position, a uh, more defensible position or, or whatnot. And so you, you bid, you know, and, and as you were talking about, you bid points. You know, you're you're basically giving up points because you feel you're going to have an advantage, um, you know, with that, or or it's going to be better for you, or a better fit, or you're going to be able to do more. And so that's a tried and true system that, yeah, you know, I I absolutely agree would probably really add a lot of value to Terra Mystica for people once they really know the game. I don't know how much value it would be for people new to the game, uh, because I think until you played it a few times and you have an idea of the dynamics of the game and how those races are going to interact with those various systems, I don't know that it's really going to help new players, but I think once you know the game well, that's going to be really valuable. Um, and, and, and There is kind of different phases that you go through with the game, too. Um, I think that when you're sort of dis- you're in this discovery phase of the game, um, you're really just playing the races to see how they interact. And, and I think at that point, you know, worrying about the points is really difficult. And I, I really want to echo what you said is is very very accurate. And, and I can say from experience, my younger brother, um, when we auctioned off a race, and and he ended up getting really frustrated. Um, at the end of the game, and, and, and he and I just, we, we had a really long discussion of whether or not that was an okay thing to do, and I think it all boils down to that the auction is okay, but exactly what you said, my brother being, a, it being his second game and trying to, you know, be thrown into this and in, in analyzing the different values of the different races, it was just really, really difficult, frustrating, didn't help him at all. Yeah, and I think that's an area where, you know, if you're... If you're trying to be an ambassador for 
board games, which it sounds like you certainly are. I mean, you're volunteering to talk on the show tonight. Uh, you're introducing people to new games. You know, you, you want to kind of give people those heads up. You know, you you want mm-hmm. to, uh, and, and it's totally okay, I think, to challenge yourself as the more experienced player by taking a race that you know is going to be a little less optimal than some of the other ones that are out there, um, you know, or or handicap yourself by overpaying. If you're going to use that system, handicap yourself a little bit mm-hmm. without tipping your hat to the other player that you're doing that. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can handicap yourself by really kind of overvaluing. You know that, that they've they've picked something, and uh, you know you and another experienced player are looking at each other. And it's like, yeah, all right, I probably shouldn't bid more than this on this, but I'm going to bid this anyway because this is filled first game and you know i i know because this is a game that's more strategic and more skill driven as you said earlier you know you're you're going to do better than a new player you know you kind of can't help um you know the best that you can do in that situation is explain as you're playing maybe why you're doing better than the, than the new player so they kind of understand um a little bit better and they they can kind of kind of take it as a learning sort of a thing you're sort of teaching them as you play but i think also by inflating your own bid is another nice way kind of a, a nice uh, um sportsman-like kind of way to sort of handicap it you know almost like you know if i'm playing golf with my buddy uh, you know, I'm never going to golf the way he does. And so, you know, we, we, we can handicap it a little bit. And it's a way to kind of uh, keep me uh, feeling like I'm, I'm competing even when I'm not. Um, so I think that's another great suggestion there. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm glad to hear that, uh, you know, you had that conversation with him because, you know, sometimes with a heavier strategic game, people can be put off by it. You know, like the first time you play Puerto Rico, uh, with somebody, especially if you're playing with people who are hyper competitive and can be somewhat uh, tools about it, um, <laughs> you, you, you can you can really turn somebody off. Uh, not just to that game, but to gaming in general. So um, I think you know we kind of have a responsibility as people who are trying to introduce these games to kind of really. Um, teach and and give a leg up and and give a nod to the the fact that hey this person we more, most importantly we want them to have a good time and you know if they have a good time they're going to come back and they're going to play it again and terra mystica is one of those games that offers an almost kind of i'm not going to say infinite but it offers a lot of replay uh, replay value there's a lot of there's so many different uh, permutations of races that can come out in any particular game that you're really not going to have that same experience twice. And, you know, where you choose to start and all of these different decisions that you have to make uh, really are going to make for a unique experience each time, yes? Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, that if you if you use the randomized uh, setup, um, that, that the just the race combinations would be whatever 2 to the 10th is. Um, that's how many different different sorts of you know sets, and and of course some are going to play very similar to other ones, um, but then you also add your that the bonus tiles that that are going to be in the game each round. You we haven't touched on this, but each round um, when you pass, you get to take a tile that that gives you a bonus for the following round, and those are those are chosen uh, at random, and and there's less there's there's only like I think ten of them total. Right, or, right. There's not a and, lot and of them. So, yeah. In an, in, an, in a five-player game, you'll use eight of them. So there's you know there's only gonna be two that get left out. But in a four-player game, you'll only use seven of them. Um, and and then the, the the variability of the uh, random uh, rounds that come out. You know the order of those is whatever you know six times five times four times three times two is. So 
um, yeah, there's there's a lot of different sort of setups, and um, I think that's what it, that's what kind of gives this the legs that it needs. Um, it's it's not going to have your you know your cards like in Agricola, um, but but then at the same time, I, I think that 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 the differences between the way races play is is going to be potentially different than the way that just a certain combo of cards. Well, it could play very, very differently. A lot of times you're, you're still focused, you know, on, on getting, you know, getting food early and then getting, getting pretty much everything by the end of the game. Right, it's just right. how you get there. Yeah. Um, I think that in, in, in Terra Mystica, there are certain things that, that, that you're going for, but, but the how you get there can be very, very different as a, as a result of the, the differing races. And um, I, I, you talked about essential stuff in the expansion. So I would say that the auctioning is an essential for the heavy, long-term, uh, experienced players game. And I think that the variable round order or variable player order, whatever it is, you know, to track the player order right. is, is absolutely necessary and, and needs it. I think it should be... Um, I think it should be something that's mailed out not only to everybody who owns a gri- uh, to Terra Mystica, but also just as a nice little promo <laughs> at tie-in for everybody who's ever had to suffer through watching somebody get your action because they were next to the person who happened to go for first last round. Right, right. Yeah, and that can be extremely frustrating. And it sounds as though the system you're describing in Terra Mystica is a little bit similar. It reminds me of Brass. You know, the person who spent the most money... Um, uh, this is a, a game by Martin Wallace. Uh, the person who spent the most money um, on their turn is going to be the last player. And the person mm-hmm. who spent the least is going to be the first player. And everybody is going to be ranked based on the amount of money that they spent. Well, in Terra Mystica, basically, money is, is the number of actions you've taken. I mean, that's, it's, that, mm-hmm. that's the heart of the game. The more actions you get to take the better off you're going to do in the game. So it makes perfect sense to me to say that, hey, if I'm the last person to pass, that means I did the most stuff. I had the mm-hmm. most opportunities of anybody. And so, therefore, I'm going to be going last on the next turn. And and, and I think that, that that really makes a lot of sense and would be a great way to kind of level that a little bit. So I think I'm in, in agreement with you there. Uh, if you've ever been... Have you ever been the first person or the second person to pass, and then you watch somebody take another six actions, um, and then and then the next turn you watch them go second, and then you have to wait until you go fifth. You're sitting there. You end up with a lot of downtime, and you you get to the point where you're not really feeling the love so much. Right, right. Now that can definitely be uh, an enemy of the game as well, uh, especially depending on the the player count and the number of people. So. Um, I, I'm sorry, not the number of people, the the, the type of players that you're playing with, whether oh, you're playing the with number those of people. Yeah, yeah, we haven't touched on that. Do you want to uh, real briefly kind of talk about what do you think is the optimum number of players for this game? What, we had this discussion leading into um, knowing that I was going to talk about it. My, my friend Andy and I had this discussion. We've been talking back and forth about this. Um, I think, um, and Andy's of this of a certain mind. I think that the five player game is generally what I'm most drawn to, and and I feel kind of the same way about Agricola for the most part. Um, even though Agricola there isn't there's there's kind of fundamental differences in the way that a one that a two that a one two three four five player game works. Um, I find myself just for some reason drawn to that that five player game, um, and I, I don't know why, but it just feels kind of like that's that may have been what the designer intended in the first place. And that's that's what I think I'm most drawn to in Terra Mystica, and that that may may or may not be the case. Um, I know a lot of times that you know they they design it for four, and then they eke in that fifth player, and that's what really makes everybody go, "Oh, is it my turn yet?" Right, <laughs> right, yeah. 
eking in the fifth player is something that I think sometimes can kind of harm the game because you end up with that those time between turns when you're like, ah, oh, is it my turn yet? And I, I really think that, that in Terra Mystica, though, that I think a four-player game is kind of a friendly game. Um, I, I feel like it's friendly in so much that um, depending on the races you've selected and the areas that you've all selected, which is going to affect each game greatly, um, you're, you're not always going to develop the entire board. There's a lot of times going to be kind of like these sort of frontier areas that, that people may or may not have one or two, you know, like, like a section across the river up in the northwestern corner of the map. And, and I think in that four-player game, it's not really necessary to play the whole board. But I think once you get to five, I can tell you from experience, the last game I played with five, there was really, uh, there was definitely, we didn't build on the whole map, and I don't think it's possible to do that. I think that would be the heck of an interesting thing to see. But um, the, there was definitely a huge spread. And, and it, was, it was very, it was much more cutthroat. So the five-player game can be more cutthroat. And I think it feels a bit more like Small World um, in, in the five-player game. It just, just an it just just a smidge of small world. We're not talking, you know, because in small world, of course, you can take areas and lose areas, and it's kind of this tug of war. Right. And Terra Mystica, once it's taken, it's taken. So, um, and and sometimes you can have some crucial areas that'll that'll cut you off that that, that other people will go for. Um, but I think that the four player game is if is if you enjoy being able to just kind of um, kind of have that competitive um, ha- have the board to compete over. And, and have the cult try to compete over, I think that it's a good balance there. I think that in a five-player game, almost every single turn, all six of those magic actions, at least at least five of those six magic actions, everything except for the most expensive one, which is kind of more specific based on whether or not you needed action, um, I think that those five actions are always going to be taken, more or less. Um, at, least the, at least the income-heavy ones will always be taken. Um, I, I think in a four-player game, there will be many rounds where they're not taken. Right. I think in a three-player game, I think that you're basically going to be able to get what you want as long as it's not exactly what one other person happens to want. And I think in the two-player game, it's probably going to be – you're not going to have much area to really branch out. Because really, um, what one thing that, that's really fun to do in the game is to start in one area and then to kind of seek to, to touch up with another player in another area because you know that you're going to be able to start upgrading for your cheaper, you know. Um, your cheaper upgrades and stuff. Um, so, you, so you, you know, you, you kind of have like a quest to really like, like they did back in the days, they really wanted to, uh, you know, connect up to the indies and that's what Columbus was searching for. In the same way, you know, it's like, oh, I see those witches over there and we've got we've to make our trading route all the way to go to them because we've already exhausted all options we have with the giants on our other side. Um, and I think that that really comes through in the four-player game, and, and, and somewhat in the five-player game, but the five-player game can be as cutthroat as it is, um, as it is where you're trying to kind of, of, of connect to other players. Well, I think uh, I, I'm in agreement with you regarding the two-player game, uh, and that's I've had a lot of experience with this as a two-player game, and I, my my suspicion is, and uh, it's not really at its best in any way with two players. This is, you know, you were talking about games kind of throw in that fifth player. I think there's an equal amount of games that throw in the second player, 
and say, oh, yeah, 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 you can play this with two. When no, in actuality, wonders. yeah, yeah. Whereas in actuality, this is a three to five player game. I, I think I would definitely say that that would be the case for Terra Mystica. Um, the cult track really does become almost entirely a zero sum affair when you're playing with two players. <laughs> and, um, you know, it just really, as you said, there's, there's not as many opportunities to expand kind of creatively. You're sort of clustered, dancing around each other, um, you know, looking for sort of surgical ways to get in each other's way. But otherwise, you know, you, you don't have a lot of restrictions. Um, and so I really think this game probably should have been built as like a three to five player game. I, I, I agree with you that, you know, five player is I've only played it that way once. Uh, most of my plays have been either two player or four player. And the four player game is is really enjoyable. Great time. Two player game. Mm, you know, I, I just that's why I haven't played it in a while. I, it just has not come out because it's not something that I'm going to choose to play two-player is really the bottom line. I, I'm waiting always to play it with a larger group of people. So, Regarding the two-player game, I think that this game is begging for something that was done in Agricola, All Creatures, Big and, big and Small. And I think... I think that um, I, I know I compared a lot to Agricola, but it's just I, I think that the that you can see some influence of Uwe Rosenberg just in the balancing of how balanced all these different races are, and I know they brought him in for a lot of the game development. I'd read an article in in the um, Spielbox magazine that was regarding it is it is these the gentleman's um, first big game, and I think that this uh, that the original publisher was kind of centered around being able to bring this Terra Mystica to the forefront. Um, and, and they, but they brought in, they really, you know, they, they kind of brought all the stops in for this first game. Um, and I think that, that more so than Agricola needed all creatures big and small, um, which is essentially just kind of a simpler two-player version of Agricola. If those have not played it, it's, it tends to focus entirely, uh, there is no crops, it's entirely on the, um, the animals. Um, right. I think that Terra Mystica needs a two-player sort of sort of uh, a, a smaller, maybe kind of a chop. Maybe maybe that's the time when you need to chop that cult track out of it because I can definitely see how the cult track is just zero gain, or or it could be just the reason you win because because one of you goes for it and the other one doesn't, and it's an automatic eight bonus points for just having a two on the cult track. Right. Um, I think that it needs a two-player game for it to become. You know, it, it needs a separate game. It it doesn't. Agricola works well with two players. It does. It's a great game yes, with two it does. players. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Agricola, all creatures big and small, is essentially just a simpler version of it. Um, and it's one that my wife will imp- will will play and enjoy. Um, whereas Agricola is just, you know, she doesn't understand the cards. And and I think you mentioned earlier about playing with your wife that she wants to know how to play. My wife is 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 hilarious because it's it's the exact opposite. If there's an an element she doesn't understand in the game, she won't ask a question about it. She'll just pretend like it doesn't exist. And <laughs> and so when we play the Agricola all creatures big and small, there's these stalls you can build. And and there I was like winning every single game because I just get all the stalls whenever I needed one. And then right. I think we finished our eighth game. And then she said, "So you built a stall that game?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I built a stall." And she's like, "What is that?" <laughs> we played it eight times. And so. Yeah. I think that it's really in need of, of kind of I'm not saying a simplified version, but but I, I'd like to see you know how how the board can interact because maybe you'd have like these sort of 
of, of routes you're trying to connect to, kind of like dummy players that are on the outside or maybe goals right. that each one of you is trying to, you know, make a certain, sh- you know, shape or something like that. I don't, I don't know how they could do that to make it a, a better game for two players, but, but it's definitely not one that I would recommend sitting down and playing for two players. It is made at least for three. I've played it many times with three, and I definitely prefer it with four. And and uh, if, if I'm going to play it, a lot of times, with four, I, I enjoy a four-player game. I would say probably close to as much as I enjoy a five-player game, but either one is going to be fine. It's just, what am I in the mood for? Am I in the mood for punishment? Am I in the mood for the angst and the, and, and the frustration of, of everything that I need being gone before I can get there? Then I'll play five players. Otherwise, if, if, I, if I don't want to get slapped around, I can play a four-player game. There you go. There you go. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you, Joe, for uh, taking the time to share all of your insights about Terra Mystica, um, you know, from the, the player tips that you've offered to the advice for new players to the overview for the expansion, for those of us out there who haven't had a chance to try that yet, and for, uh, you know, taking the time to describe all of the ways in which this game really just fires on all cylinders for you. So, um, you know, before we sign off, is there is there anything that we haven't had a chance to chat about that you would like to talk about uh, regarding uh, Terra Mystica here? Um, and then uh, before we sign off, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that uh, you are dipping your toes in the podcast water as well. So I want to give you a chance to, to plug yourself there a little oh, bit. Oh, sure. Great. Um, thanks. But is there anything else that uh, you would like to talk about with Terra Mystica before we sign off? Uh, only thing I haven't mentioned yet that we talked about a little bit earlier is the, uh, the promos. Um, yes, yeah. And I think that this game did the promos. Um, you know, promos are kind of one of those controversial things where I, I've got friends that are really, really into the promos and some friends that, that, that are really frustrated by them. And then I kind of stand in the middle where, where if I like the game enough, I'm going to seek it out. Um, but I don't, I don't think that I'm into promos enough to make that the reason that I'm going to do something or the reason I'm going to buy something because it comes with a promo. Um, this game keeps it to... A simple two promos that have come out so far that have changed the gameplay. And and uh, one of them is just to add more town tiles to the game. And I really think that this changes um, how your the, the options that are going to be available. Because um, we talked a lot about town tiles, the things that you get after you after you form a certain size of a town. Um, mm-hmm. And and what the one of the town tiles that this adds, and there's only one of them, and it's kind of a fun a fun uh, moment when somebody takes it because there's one that's just a straight eleven points. It doesn't give you any resources at all, just eleven points. And somebody's like, usually the, whoever gets it is like, I'm taking the eleven pointer, and and then somebody across the table is like slowly watching their dreams die because <laughs> if they're able to take the eleven pointer, it means they've got their economy on on a good enough space or. You know, sometimes that can be kind of like a like a cry for help. Where you're like, I haven't gotten enough points. I need to get that. Right. But um, um, the other one that it comes with, and this is this is the promo that I'm kind of on on on, on the fence either way about. Um, we mentioned that that you have bonus cards that you t- take each round, and you get to take from available ones after you. Whenever you pass, there are going to be certain ones that nobody's possessing. You get to choose from those. It adds right. it, it adds a shipping um, one where you get points for how high your shipping is and a lot of people see this as being as creating a balance issue because of the mermaids um, because they start with this inherent shipping and then they can get their shipping up to five to the point where you can get a 15 point bonus from shipping just by taking this one card and a lot of other races are not maybe not even going to compete with them over it 
Right. Um, so then you're having to take it for denial, which is suboptimal for you. Oh, yes, exactly. And I would say that um, that is one that, that I have always been playing with ever since I got it. I, I definitely went to, I had it, uh, you know, Deutschland, Luftmail, or whatever it is, all the way from Germany, um, along with that episode, with an episode of, uh, of uh, Spielbox that it came in. But um, I would definitely say that that one is is one that I'm still I'm still not sure. I think if I'm playing with the mermaids, it, it depends on whether or not I'm going to put it into the to the potential tiles because you're still going to randomly select them. But if I'm playing with the mermaids in another race that's almost guaranteed to go to the water, or if I'm playing without the mermaids, then I'll throw it in there because you know if you're going high on the shipping uh, track, there's you know it's kind of nice to have that in there to balance it a little bit more because there's not really other reasons to go for shipping so much. Well, that that sounds like a very sensible way to look at it, though. You know, which is if I'm if you're playing with the mermaids and are the only ones that would benefit from it, then you take it out. But if you're playing with a couple races, you know that that uh, it's not a super important you know part of their abilities or their overarching kind of a strategy, then you can put it in there, and it can be just another uh, you know thing that that multiple people can work towards. That sounds very sensible to me. Well, thanks for the overview of those expansions. So, um, you know, before we uh, sign off uh, our discussion of Terra Mystica. Um, I, I did hear from you that you were starting a podcast of your own um, and that that was something that you were uh, uh, diving into. And so what can you tell us a little bit about your podcast as far as, you know, what is kind of your, your goal for the podcast? What are the sort of things you're going to be covering or talking about? Um, you know, what, what space are you, are you looking to fill? And where can people find you? Um, my, my podcast, in, in a lot of ways, is just inspired by um, uh, different elements of a lot of the podcasts that I've seen. So, so it's not so much um, – I, I thought about that for a while. I thought about, you know, do I need to offer something totally new? Do I need to do something like, you know, like uh, the, the, the gentlemen, which I'm sure they're just wonderful at, at Flip the Table, um, the, the, but, but bless their hearts for playing those games that, that sometimes <laughs> – I, I just think, you know, yeah. I, I don't know if I, I – I don't think I'm really wanting to sacrifice so much um, so much as, as I want to, to be able to kind of, of, of think about and, and really take time to reflect on the games that I've played and, and sort of compare those to other games. Um, and, and I've got two other gentlemen that are doing it, that are, that are playing it with me. Um, Trent Ham is, is, uh, known on Board Game Geek as Gaming Trent. He's done a video, he's done video series in the past. Um, and oh, yeah. Really interesting though, because I, I I realized that I lived so close to him, and and the hilarious thing is that we've both moved up to the northern part of Iowa, um, the northwestern part. He and I grew up um, in towns that are literally right across the river from each other in southeast Iowa. It's just that's not a very heavily populated area. That's not like being like, oh, I'm from New York, you're from New York. Holy crap! No, um, <laughs> this is like he told me the name of his town, Nyota, Illinois, and I was like, I bet I'm the only person in this region that's never known of that place when you mentioned it. Right, right. So um, yeah, I think I actually had him on the show for Netrunner. You did for Netrunner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah he was a lot of fun to talk to. A very nice guy. So, so yeah, he, you got the gaming. Trent is is doing the podcast with me. He's he's definitely sort of our gaming mage, I would say. Um, and and the the name of our podcast is the Good, the Bored, and the Ugly. And um, I definitely am. <laughs> 
probably the closest thing to the ugly on the podcast, <laughs> if there is one. Because um, really, I would say the one thing that I'm offering is I, I hear a lot of the things that I was um, hearing. Like I, I, I watch a lot of Tom Vassell's Dice Tower videos and, I, and, and, and his things. And I love hearing Tom Vassell's opinions. And he has totally perfected his video reviews are 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 just he has just an elegance to them and he is such a professional about them his opinions and mine i found more and more are, are very different and i hear him criticize opinions that i've never had but i feel kind of like like it's it's apparently the opinions that he's criticizing are ones that he's hearing somewhere and and a lot of times they're they're opinions that i may have had but but or maybe would have had um, but 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 the long story short is I am the game snob. Um, I I will be the one to sit there and 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 say, and say this game just did not have the strategic depth. You know this, this and I guess that's why why I would call myself the ugly one. Like I I mean I I went as far as our last our last debate that we had on the podcast was about um, whether or not certain games could actually be considered games. <laughs> Nice, and, nice, and 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 it really is. Um, were you talking about Munchkin? Um, well, we very well could have been, but actually, mine was about. Uh, uh, I, I was I was mentioned. What they kind of got me on was Eldritch Horror. They knew that was a game that I really disliked, and and I'd mentioned in passing that it didn't feel like a game to me. It felt more like getting together and 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 reading a bunch of 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 crappy fan fiction written in the H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> world, and and that it was really just didn't do it for me, and and. And I think a lot of it is is that that a lot of the games that that I have a hard time with at this point are are are, are experience driven. And I think that 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 yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I don't want to get too too in depth into that same discussion because I, I really appreciate giving me a, a, a time to kind of plug our podcast here. But we are, I, I guess that we're kind of three, almost like uh, the three stooges. Um, or, or maybe I'm the stooge, and and then the, and, and then the other two guys are are willing to to put up with me. And and by the end of the episode, I think that we all kind of of uh, one of our other episodes so far has been about um, the uh, the word use of the word ameritrash and whether or not it is it is okay and what games should it does it talk about and and does that does that um, lessen a game if it if it involves elements that people would potentially call ameritrash you know or, or right, if, if right. that's sort of a genre um, but I guess we're looking at topics in gaming and I am not I I, I I, I'm the guest here, so I'm, I'm behaving like a guest on your show, Jeff. And, and you're such a very gentlemanly host. And you know, like I've mentioned before, you know, you you you, you hold your show like it's kind of like an episode of NPR. I feel like it's an all points considered. <laughs> nice. Very very good moderator. And whereas me on my on my on on my podcast. Um, it's something where, where to reflect, to really get into that reflection. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm right about everything at all. And, and a lot of times um, I kind of figure out more about my own opinions and why it is that, that I feel a way. But, but I feel kind of like the same way that, uh, that, that I'm, I'm like the, opinion, you know, the, the person who can get so caught up in his opinions that I need a chance to talk them out with people who are willing to, to hear them and discuss them with me. And, and I guess it's kind of like um, it, like tune into the good, the bored, and the ugly, so you can listen to my group therapy session. Essentially, is what I'm saying. So, nice, nice. Okay, great. <laughs> are you are you on iTunes? We are. I think maybe an hour ago or two hours ago, we just became available on iTunes. So I submitted the RSS feed. We're actually hosting it through uh, Podbean. So um, if you can't find us on iTunes right now, which um, I I will uh, let me go ahead. And I hear you clicking. 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, let me go ahead and check uh, and see if I can find us on iTunes really quick. Because I, I submitted it. Um, and the... Let's see. I don't know if I can... Yeah, you're, you're probably... I, I know that my... I have thunderous mousing when... <laughs> and I apologize for that, Jeff. I appreciate <laughs> That's you. That's fine. Um, yeah, you know, it's... Uh, so if, if we can't find you on iTunes, uh, is there a guild or anywhere that you can point people to? Uh, perhaps on uh, uh, BGG? Soon will be one. Um, I'm still, you know, like as as you... I'm sure that you've... It, I... I, I, I a lot of this, Jeff, has kind of like I want to. I want to kind of know how you got started, and did you did you start a guild before you started your podcast, or? Um... I started it at the same time. Okay, so um, I, I kind of started at the same time. I had uh, uh, actually gained a lot of uh, geek gold um, through using uh, part of the uh, the distributive folding opportunity the board game geek had, uh, the the uh, uh, team Geekdo uh, folding at home. Uh, which is something that I still think they're doing. And you just got a, a Geek Gold reward every month for participating in this. Basically, it's protein folding. Um, and this is something that they're looking at in scientific research uh, for genetic therapies and things of that nature. And they're looking at different protein models and, and uh, different ways in which uh, these molecules can be manipulated. And what they do is rather than try to purchase you know, a supercomputer that can crunch all of this what these universities do is they ask people uh, like you and me who have a computer at home if you're willing to leave it on during the day there's like a program that will run in the background of your computer and I did it for years and it's safe I never had a problem with it of course I always run Mac which is a little safer than PC but I I never really had a problem Uh, just want to kind of throw that out there Mm -hmm. but every time your computer goes to sleep the program kicks in and it starts crunching the proteins huh. and it then sends that data back to the university so it doesn't ever affect your computer performance um, it doesn't ever slow down your network because it's waiting until everything is idle so if you just kind of have your your computer or your laptop on and open mm-hmm. um, you know uh, at night it'll just sit there and work on crunching these proteins at night and uh, as kind of a reward for participating in that, you got Geek Gold. So I think they still do it, which is why I spend so much time answering your question, uh, because I think it's a very worthwhile cause. Mm-hmm, um, certainly. And, and, and so I had a lot of Geek Gold. And so I was able to kind of get that guild going concurrently with me starting the podcast. So um, while I've been sitting here talking, I've also been looking for your podcast um, by looking for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, the Good, on, The Bored, and The uh, Ugly. Mm-hmm. Oh, The Good, The Bored. Oh, see, that's why I was getting all of these terrible – I'm like, that can't be right. The Good, The Bored, and The Ugly. So were you able to find it as we're both sitting here trying to stall um, for time? I, um, I Unfortunately, I got two different um, – computers right now i have a mac and a pc <laughs> and uh <Gotcha. laughs> and my my yeah I, i'm currently recording i use audacity on my pc but my school i try to use my um my mac which is a school computer i try to use it mainly for kind of school related things though it's kind of nice mm-hmm. and i'll always be i, I know I, I listened to a few of your episodes recently um and, and how you kind of you know needed to you were hearing the fan come on and stuff and uh-huh yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you, you were able to get it get a new one though right 
I was able to grab something, yes, which has uh, been very, very uh, uh, helpful because uh, uh, recording for this long really does um, start to, to wear on your computer. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of crunching going on when you record mm -hmm. for long stretches of time like this. Um, all right, so if we can't find you on iTunes, what is your Podbean, I think you said? Uh, how would we find you there? Uh, Podbean, it's just podbean.com, and you search for the good, the bored, and the ugly. Um, Website-wise, it would be uh, Joseph Salen, which is my also my uh, board game geek username. dot podbean. dot com. Um, I believe that'll take you to it. If not, it's uh, Joseph Salen. dot podbean. dot com slash feed. Um, nice. So, so yeah, we just we are just in the in the fledgling stage. We've now recorded four episodes, one of which will most likely never see the light of day. <laughs> um, and then one of which I still am, am, am waiting on another track getting sent to me because because I'm uh, we're getting to the point where we're recording on separate feeds so so you'll kind of hear um, uh, a, a quality improvement as we continue to um, innovate and 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 uh, get new equipment. Um, but we are and, and, and um, I'm going to be starting some things up on Board Game Geek. But at this point, the, the only way that you're going to be able to locate us is through podbean.com and then searching the good, the bored, and the ugly. And I know that it's come up by my, um, my, my dad, who is horrible with computers and um, <laughs> always wondering how he can do things, was able right, to find right. us. Just go good. to podbean.com. And uh, they, they've got, they offer a very, what I found to be a, a place to be able to host the site, just kind of get us started up. And um, I, I hope that anybody who, who seeks us out there isn't, horribly offended by by my opinions and i really appreciate you offering me the chance jeff to not only speak on your wonderful program which i will continue to be an avid listener of um and supporter i, lo I love the long view it is it is currently my favorite board gaming podcast i well, love thank the you very much look, um that you give and 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 the critical mind that you give i also think that a lot of the things that i hear you echo the way I hear you echo your your classroom experiences on the on the show just uh, it really resonates well with me. I think as a, as a fellow teacher, um, the uh, and I really appreciate you giving me the chance to speak on your show and 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 give a little shout out there. So um, I, I appreciate it and I would love to do to collaborate more with you in the future. Um, sure, it, sure, yeah. No, I appreciate that. That's uh, nice of you to say, and uh, it's always nice. Uh, uh, to get the chance to meet new people and talk to uh, uh, people about uh, their favorite games. Uh, invariably, it's something that they're passionate about. And, uh, you know, your podcast sounds like a lot of fun. I'll be sure to be looking for it and uh, uh, look it up and listen. And thanks for, uh, you know, the kind words yourself. So uh, I, thanks again, uh, you know, for being on the show tonight, Joe. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, I appreciate you uh, accepting my offer to talk about a great game. And uh, it's been a wonderful evening talking about this with you.
So the first game that we're going to review today is a brand new title um, called City Hall. Uh, this was designed by Michael Keller, and it's published by Tasty Minstrel Games, and it's listed for two to four players uh, with a playtime of about 90 minutes. Um, this is a game that I actually have a little bit of background and experience with. Uh, I had met Michael at uh, one of the local uh, cons in New Jersey uh, years ago when he was first developing this game, and I remember being intrigued by it at the time. Uh, because of the sort of dual currency nature of the game. And uh, I have to say that uh, in the intervening time period, he's done quite a lot to kind of streamline the game and simplify the game, and yet keep the core, which is really quite interesting. So what is City Hall about? Um, this is a game that reminds me quite a bit, in, in some respects, of Tammany Hall. Uh, this is uh, a game about uh, basically peddling your, you know, using your influence and, and gaining influence and uh, trying to kind of uh, develop New York City, in particular uh, the boroughs of Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn. Uh, in addition to that, uh, you're trying to bring new people into the city, grow the city. Uh, you're attempting to uh, kind of increase your standing in the community so that when the end of the game comes, you are going to be elected mayor. Uh, the way you are elected mayor is basically your kind of public support, uh, which is a score that you can kind of increase as the game goes on, and the population that you've brought into the city as your supporters. And in addition, there's lots of kind of in-game bonus cards that you can get that will garner you votes as well. So, the really interesting thing about this game is that it's really rather streamlined. Um, basically, what you have is a uh, sort of a, a graphically kind of very simple layout of the boroughs of New York. Um, and each of those boroughs is divided into little rectangular areas that are individual plots of land. On those individual plots of land, uh, you're going to be able to eventually build some buildings. Um, you're, you're either going to build some towers, you're going to build some housing, you might build some factories or perhaps you could build some parks. These are the kind of uh, types of buildings that you can build in the city, and each of them is going to interact with each other in different ways. One of the things that's really fascinating about this is that the buildings that you construct in the game not only impact uh, buildings that are in your neighborhood, uh, meaning you know immediately surrounding you, uh, both orthogonally and diagonally, which is unusual, but also any uh, buildings that your opponents have built will interact with yours as well. So there's a little bit of, of opportunity for team play here, a little bit, uh, for mutual benefit. There's also the opportunity to really kind of mess with your neighbor because you can actually put a, a less desirable building, like say a factory next to a lot of nice posh housing, which is going to decrease their value you. So buildings that you build, first you have to get the property. Uh, once you get the property, then you have to build the buildings. After you've built the buildings, you're going to take a look at the surrounding neighborhood or area, um, again, orthogonally and um, diagonally. And what you're going to do is you're going to calculate kind of what's called the star value of your properties. You know, how prestigious are your properties or is this neighborhood? And that is going to be changing as the game goes on, as more and more areas are developed nearby, etc., etc. So a really interesting kind of thing going on there. That's going to kind of uh, form a little bit of the base of your economy. And what I mean by that is it's, it's going to form a, a little bit of the base for your population. Because all of these people that you're trying to attract have to have somewhere to go or something to do. 
So every time that you want to try and bring new people into the city, uh, you're going to take a look at who is providing the most opportunities for those people. Whoever is providing the most opportunities, as rated by the star value of all their properties, is going to get the largest bump, uh, for example, in population. And since population, that's kind of affiliated with you, happy with you, is a large portion uh, of what is going to constitute who wins the game at the end, this is actually very important. So the the heart of the game really kind of revolves around that, but there's all these different offices that you're going to be kind of vying for. And, and the thing that I like about the game is that it's a once-around bid game. So it really is kind of an auction game at heart. So after some initial setup, you're going to uh, send out your little meeples. They're called staffers. You're going to send out your little staffers, and you're going to basically select an office for the round that you would like to try to either control or one that you think one of your opponents really wants to control and that they're willing to give you a lot of influence for. As I said, there's two currencies in the game. There's straight out money, which you need to buy properties, and money can also buy you influence and money can also buy you popular support. Uh, however, um, there's also what's called influence. Influence is what you have to bid in order to gain an office. So. Uh, kind of thinking about the offices in general, uh, we have a few different types. So uh, we have the tax assessor. Uh, this is the way you're going to actually gain money during the course of the game. Uh, your tax assessment is going to be based on your population. And then you also have uh, places like the surveyor. What the surveyor is going to allow you to do is take a look and see if there's new plots of land that you might perhaps want to try to invest in. Okay, So anytime you select one of these offices, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be putting that office up for bid. So just because you selected it does not necessarily mean you're going to get it. What it means is that you could potentially get it, and if you're willing to pay equal to the highest bid that someone else has made uh, in influence, then you can take the effect of that office, but uh, you can also collect influence from someone else and let them do it. So the surveyor is going to allow you to select a new lot, a new piece of property that you can then later develop. Then you have the campaign manager. When you select a campaign manager, then what you're going to do is you're going to move up in that all-important approval rating. The approval rating is actually a multiplier um, for your population. So the higher your approval rating and the higher your population, the better your score is going to be. The approval rating track is also a nice little clever uh, timer for the game. As soon as someone reaches max approval rating, or as soon as a certain number of buildings have been built in the city, the game's going to end. And there's really no way to stop that. You can try to delay it, but chances are, you know, it's it's going to march forward rather um, rather steadily. And so uh, the game can actually uh, end rather quickly. Uh, if someone has enough money and they take the campaign manager role, they can actually pay money to move up in that scale a little bit higher than they normally would. And, you know, again, using money as power, and they can actually end the game if they think it's going to be advantageous to them. So that's another interesting little part of the game. You then have the investment, uh, I'm sorry, the lobbyist office. And the lobbyist office is where you're just going to straight get influence. You're going to use your staffer uh, as a lobbyist. They're going to gain some influence. They're going to press the flesh, meet some people. Uh, very kind of thematic feeling. And once again, thematically, uh, you can spend money to gain more influence. 
Uh, next up would be the zoning board. And the way the zoning board works is that's where you're going to get new buildings. So every time the zoning board is activated by whoever wins that bid, you're going to get to take your pick of the buildings that were flopped from a pile. There's always three buildings that are going to be made available. And you're going to get your uh, chance to either take two of those into your hand, take one into your hand and build one, or build two out of your hands. So that's another way that the game can progress quite rapidly because as you remember that approval rating track will move every time a building is built so beware a player who has a large hand of buildings because they might be able to rush the end of the game on you when, when you're not really ready for it so that's kind of nifty uh, the deputy mayor is a very interesting uh, spot it's the only way to change turn order and it only changes turn order for the person who wins uh, the office and they go straight to the front of the line everybody else just shifts backwards uh, it, it's really an interesting kind of a space and I've played this game a few times now and I'm not sure how I feel about it um, what I mean by that is not that it's a bad space or, or whatnot but the fact that I'm not entirely sure that going first is always best uh, the last game I played I pretty much was content to go last the entire game and it ended up working out quite well for me so uh, while the temptation is to always try to make sure that you're first I'm not exactly sure that that's always necessary as long as you are laying back enough and not being so aggressive that you don't ever have any influence in your hand uh, and that's one of the great balancing acts about this game um, you're constantly trying to spend influence to gain the power of the offices that are being auctioned off but you're also trying to collect influence from the other players by allowing them to take an office. To take a juicy kind of a, a, an office uh, uh, at the right time. Uh, you know, sometimes you might only get one or two influence for an office. But I've played games where someone was willing uh, to pay as high as nine uh, or ten for an office. And so that can really swing a game if you're able to kind of put yourself in a position where somebody really wants, a bunch of players really want the power of that particular office, and you don't really need it. You know, I've got enough building cards in my hand, but I know everybody else is jonesing for one, so when I select zoning board, I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to let people pay me, you know, and they're paying you an influence that you can then later use to your advantage. So there's a really interesting dynamic there. Getting back to the deputy mayor, the deputy mayor just allows you to go first, so you might think that's really important sometimes. Or you might decide, eh, I can let it go. The reason why turn order is important in the game is because whoever puts an office up for bid always has the option of matching the bid. So you remember I said this is a once around. So let's say that I select the zoning board and I really want a building card. So I have selected the zoning board. Maybe I set myself up to go first just for that reason because I want a building. I want to build a building this turn. I want to take one from the display and build one from my hand. Well, I start off the bid with zero. Um, frankly, I, I don't see a whole lot of sense in starting off with more than zero um, myself personally because you can always match the highest bid. So I've you know tried to kind of intimidate other players by starting off with a higher bid of like two or three, trying to force them to just pass and drop out, uh, doing some quick mental calculations about how much influence I think they have. Um, but generally, I find that it's best just to bid nothing. Um, there are people, I'm sure, who would disagree with that. Uh, perhaps Michael himself would be one, because I remember we talked about this years ago when we were playing the game. But I, I usually am content to just kind of pass. And then I wait and see what others are valuing this office at. When they're done, if I selected the office and put it up for bid, I can match it. And I can take that action that I so desperately need.
Otherwise, I can say, really? You're willing to pay seven for that? You're willing to pay eight influence for that? Yeah, I'll take that. I'll get my building later because that's going to set you up for further down the line. So there's a really interesting dynamic there. So the deputy mayor is interesting depending on the time in the game. There might only be one or two times when you really care and you might select deputy mayor. You might also select deputy mayor for another simple reason, which is that every round when players place their staffers on these office spaces, whichever ones have not been selected get an influence placed on them. It's kind of an incentive for someone to pick that office later. So you might select it just for that. Most of the time, though, you're going to kind of want to use deputy mayor as like a surgical strike kind of a thing. Okay. Uh, Deputy Mayor is also worth uh, 10 votes as one of those bonus cards at the end of the game. So sometimes people will go just for that. Finally, uh, you have what's called the Health Commissioner. The Health Commissioner is who is going to be uh, bringing new people into the city. So uh, when you select that role, you're going to have the opportunity to bid to use the star value of the buildings that you've built. And you get a nice little bump to your own star value if you win that office with influence. You kind of get to bolster your own star value by either adding three to it or doubling it. And depending on where you are in the game, you're going to want to do one of those two things. Whoever wins is going to get to go up four on the track. Second place is going to go up two. Third place is going to go up one. And fourth place is going to go up nothing. So again, since your score is your population times your approval rating, plus those end game bonus cards. This is really important. So this is where I think a lot of the knife fight in the game is. A lot of the 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 kind of tense moments in this game come from that health commissioner, campaign manager. Those are really the two areas that people fight over because if you do let someone run away with that, you are going to lose. And this brings me back to Tammany Hall. This game like Tammany Hall to me really shares a lot of similarities and that's because it is a fun game it is a bidding game at heart it is a tight and tense and wonderful game but it is a fragile game this is a game that can really be kind of messed up by the players themselves if if the table does not work to balance the game the game does not promise to be balanced for you Um, This is one of the things that really bothers people about Tammany Hall, and I suspect it might bother people about City Hall. I myself don't care. I, I, I kind of like that. I like a game that doesn't artificially kind of rein me in, that doesn't force everybody to stay close to me. If I'm playing that much better than everybody else, I should be crushing them. That's kind of the nature of modern politics. You know, if you're If you're doing just that much better of a job, then no one else is going to be able to touch you. And so to me, this is definitely a repeat play game. This is one that you have to play a few times, and and quite frankly, it's probably best if you're playing with the same people, because then you're kind of really going to get to set that economy as, as a table. You're going to kind of understand the ins and outs of the game and know that if someone is selecting health commissioner over and over and over, I mean, the last game I played, that's what I did. I selected health commissioner, I think, the first four rounds. Uh, I had built an early housing in Manhattan and therefore had the star value advantage on everybody else. And I just kept going for health commissioner and no one really cared to stop me, even though I had explained very clearly (laughs) that your score is population times approval. 
they let me get so far ahead of them in population that there was no way they were ever going to catch me. And, uh, you know, the, the scores definitely bore that out. I, I scored like, I think, 92 or 97 points or something ridiculous because my population was so high. And my multiplier through my approval rating had gone all the way up to four. So it, it was really an uh, interesting game because the other players all understood at the end of the game oh, we shouldn't have let you do that. And I was like, yeah. I kept warning you guys, if you just keep letting me win this population battle, someone needs to outbid me just for the sake of not letting me get it, just for the sake of keeping things tight in the population battle because, you know, the game is fragile. If you let somebody do something like that, if you let somebody get too far ahead in approval rating, if you let them build too many buildings, they're going to run away with the game. And so... If you understand that, and you can accept that, and you understand that the flaw is not in the game, I get really tired, on a personal note, of people kind of talking about games as being bad, or talking about a game as being kind of uh, broken or deficient in some way, if somebody can run away with a game. Um, No, no, sorry. That's actually on the player's. You know, if the players understand the game well enough, they, sh- they they need to kind of work together. The table needs to kind of work to keep everybody reasonably within striking distance so that anybody can claim the game at the end. And if the table doesn't do that, if people don't see that, I don't really know that that's the fault of the game. And I think so many people are used to more modern games where there's catch-up mechanisms and there's ways to kind of uh, blunt the... Uh, front runner, you know, and, and, and hold them back, uh, that, that they don't like it when they play a game like this. And they're like, oh my God, I got crushed. I mean, one of the guys in the game that I was just describing scored like 24 points. That was his whole score. I completely destroyed him. Didn't mean to. He still had a good time. He said he understood the game later and, oh, there's definitely things I would have done better. And that's the kind of people you need to play this game with. People who are going to want to play it, learn from it, and then have a go at it again. You know, be a ward boss again and go out there and, and see what you can do and see if you can become the next mayor of New York City in City Hall. So if you like uh, bidding games and and you like games that have that once-around bid so it doesn't go on forever... If you like the kind of dual economy of influence and money, if you like uh, the, the theme, which at times feels very thin when you're looking at the board and it's just a grid, you're like, oh, geez, this doesn't really feel very thematic. But the, the way in which you're spending and peddling influence and money feels incredibly thematic to me. If you, if you kind of enjoy a game that's going to be challenging, that the players have to be actively involved in and watch each other and, and do things to interfere with each other and at times cooperate together and help each other, then this is definitely a game that I would look at. So that's my thoughts. Uh, those are my thoughts, I guess I should say. And that's my review of uh, City Hall by Michael Keller.
Next up, uh, I want to talk about a game by Rio Grande Games, and this is called Rattlebones. Uh, this is a game that was uh, uh, sent to me by Rio Grande, and uh, it is a very, very interesting kind of uh, game here. Uh, something that I was really intrigued by when I took a look at it. And I, of course, had heard about Rattlebones as basically a game where you are customizing your dice. You're building your dice. Um, this is a game that is designed by uh, Stephen Glenn uh, in 2014. Um, and, and so we've all seen deck builder games and, uh, you know, seeing that kind of happen. But this is using dice. And I had actually seen this kind of idea before a little bit uh, in some of the, the Lego games where they had kind of dice that you had to construct. And I remember talking with a friend of mine and saying, wow, you know, wouldn't this be kind of cool if you had a game where you could kind of make your own dice and customize your dice, um, you know, according to whatever the rules of the game would be. Well, lo and behold, uh, this designer has done that. So uh, what Stephen Glenn has done is he's made a interesting little roll and move game. I know that that sounds... Uh, like a, a statement that shouldn't be coming out of my mouth, but it, it basically is a roll and move game. Uh, but it's more than that. It's actually kind of a dice management game, and, and that's kind of what I really enjoyed about it. Uh, not so much the roll and move aspect. There's a kind of a, a loose sort of a circus theme around the game. Um, but basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to customize your dice, and you're trying to score as many victory points as you can before a variable in-game timer uh, signals the end of the game. Uh, this is a game that can play extremely quickly. It can play in 20-30 minutes no problem once players are familiar with the game. So what are you doing? Well, basically uh, each player is going to start with three dice. So you have a white die, a black die, and a gray die. And all of these dice are going to have standard pip values on them from 1 through 6. Nothing, uh, you know, revolutionary there. Uh, what you're going to do, though, is you're going to make the game board. Now, the game board, uh, again, has this kind of circus theme. You're kind of wandering around kind of the, the fairgrounds, and you're looking at different booths and, and things. And each of those locations has the uh, uh, opportunity for you to change or swap out one of the dice face on a die that you roll with a face that's going to give you some sort of an action or a power or some sort of benefit, right? So uh, one of the neat things about the game is that there's some randomization to that board. It's not the same every time. About half the board is pre-printed, and the other half of the board, you're going to shuffle a deck of nice, large, rectangular kind of cards, and you're going to lay them on the board, and those are going to form the other action spaces. So when you look at it, it kind of is like looking at a set of Dominion cards. You know, you're kind of going to look at the display of the action spaces that are there, uh, you know, that you could hit through this kind of roll and move mechanism. And you're going to say, okay, I, I think, uh, you know, based on this board, I want to kind of go for this die face and this die face. I think these are going to synergize well. They're going to work together. And I'm going to try to, you know, customize my dice, ride that uh, with those dice faces and see if I win, you know. So in a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of Dominion. You know, a lot of the game is that pre-planning, you know, what do you do before you even begin? What you then have the ability to do is you get to roll one of your dice. doesn't matter what color. It really makes no difference whatsoever. I think the dice are only different colors to kind of help you remember which die you would kind of set up to do what things. So, you know, you might start with the black die, and you roll it, you move uh, one of your pawns, and one of the nice things is you have three pawns in this game, so you can move any of those three pawns, so you do actually have choices, it's not like Monopoly, where you roll and you move to a spot, and you're like, I don't want that spot, I don't like that spot, I don't, I don't want to go there, well, you know... 
sometimes that might still happen to you. Um, but it's important to note that uh, you do have three kind of pawn pieces that you can move. So if you don't have them clustered together, generally you're going to have three different options on every turn, which is enough to make you know, for a decision, uh, but not enough to, you know, grind the game to a halt as people try to figure out, you know, well, I could do this or I could do that. So I kind of like that quite a bit. So you're going to pick one of your three pawns. You're going to move them to uh, the location indicated by the number of pips on the die. And then you have a simple choice. You're either going to just end your turn and say, I'm done. Or you're going to use the die face that's pictured on that space where you landed and swap it out with the face that you rolled. So if I rolled a three, I'm now going to swap out the three uh, using a little tool. I'm going to pop that off of my die and I'm going to put a new die face on. So now the next time I roll my white die, it's going to have the one, the two, the four, the five, and the six, and it's going to have this special face. So while we're talking about the special faces, what are they? Well, there's a you know, rather large variety of special faces on the die. Uh, one of them is simply a reroll. And when you re-roll in this game, not only do you re-roll the die that you rolled, but you get to pick one of your other dice. So this is a way to get new dice rolled. And now you might be able to do two things. If you hit the re-roll uh, face again, you're going to re-roll those two dice plus your third die. And so this is a way that you can actually get a whole bunch of things going on on a single turn. And that can be quite a lot of fun. Um, but getting back to our example, there is a re-roll um, face that you can add. There is a face that uh, depicts a kind of a gold coin. That gold coin uh, will allow you, if you roll it, to collect a little gold token. And you can turn in that uh, token to then uh, you know, roll another die. So you don't have to rely on a re-roll face. You can simply pay with gold. So I've seen people try to load up on some gold faces on some of their dice in order to allow them to roll multiple die. Um, the other thing uh, that you have there is you have a star symbol. That star symbol is basically a little token that you're going to take. And if you land on the uh, kind of the start space of the game board, uh, once you've gone around, that's going to give you the ability to trade in those stars for straight victory points. And they're kind of like an exponential growth. So like one gets you three and two gets you like six or seven. I mean, it's, it's a lot more points, so it's not exactly exponential, but you get the point. Uh, I think four is like 15. It's a lot of points. So, you know, I've seen people go for that, where they try to accumulate stars and then turn them in for victory points. Um, there is also a little train face. There's like a little train that's on a track in the middle of the board. And every time you roll that train face, you move that nice wooden train token to a new section of track uh, after scoring the number of points that are indicated on the track. So it starts off low at actually zero. So the first time it's rolled, you really don't get anything. But then it moves to a one, and then it moves to a two, and a three, and a four, and it keeps getting more and more value. So you can kind of ride the train if you want to and try to use that to gain points. There is another face, for example, that is a one, two, three, four uh, face. And what that basically is, is a catch up mechanism. Now, I just talked about uh, not liking catch up mechanisms uh, in some games, but in this one, I actually do like it. Uh, this is where if you're in last place, you get four points. If you're in uh, uh, third place, you get three points. If you're in second place, you get two. If you're in first, you get one. So this is a great die face if you're kind of lagging behind in the game to help you catch up. So that's kind of nifty. Um, 
There's a lot of other faces. There's a stock face where you collect these little stock tokens, and once uh, all the stock has been taken, it triggers a scoring. Um, there are ones that there's one of my favorites is a little arrow, and you position that arrow, and whatever other face that arrow is pointing towards, it, when you roll the arrow, you kind of get to flip the die to that face. So it's a way to kind of ensure or improve the odds of getting a, a die face that you want. That's kind of neat. Um, and so there, there's all these different die faces that you can swap out, and there's some I haven't talked about. But uh, the, the, the heart of the matter is, is that when you move, you have that simple choice to take. Do I just end my turn, or do I want to swap out a die face? The only die face that you cannot swap out, however, is the Rattlebones. That's number one. Uh, the number one has this kind of symbol of this kind of dude in a long, skinny, tall dude in a top hat. That's the Rattlebones. And every time you roll Rattlebones, you have to move the Rattlebones pawn, which is a, a timer for the game, backwards on the score track. So the players are moving forwards on the score track. Rattlebones is moving backwards. And as soon as Rattlebones meets uh, the, the score marker or a player's uh, scoring piece meets Rattlebones or passes him, then the game's going to be over. And so that's kind of a variable end to the game, which can add some tension and it's kind of fun. So if you roll Rattlebones, you cannot swap out his face, but you can swap out one of the other faces on your die, which is really kind of powerful. So um, Rattlebones moves, and, and that can shorten the game, but then you do actually get to swap out a face. You just cannot swap out Rattlebones. So later in the game, this can actually be kind of cool. It's kind of like a, um, like, a, what, like a chapel card or something, where you basically can then get rid of a face on that die that you roll the rattle bones on that you really don't need anymore. Maybe you took one of those one, two, three, four faces and now you've caught up and now every time you roll it, you're only getting one point. You're like, oh, geez, that's kind of a suboptimal turn for me. Well, now maybe you might want to shift your gears. So you might want to pop that face off and replace it with something else. So um, it's a really, really interesting kind of uh, mechanic that's involved there. So, um, you know, the, the, the rattle bones is what kind of keeps... Uh, the game moving and keeps uh, everything flowing so it doesn't bog down, but it also gives you the opportunity, um, you know, because as I said, you, you kind of move forward one space and Rattlebones moves backwards one. It gives you the opportunity to then, you know, swap out a face, which is really kind of neat. So um, you know, this is a game that, honestly, my kids really enjoy. I think it's fun. Um, but it is a roll and move game, you know, it's not really something that is, um, you know, overly deep. However, I don't know that it's really meant to be overly deep. And I think uh, more for me, my interest in this game really lies in that whole uh, dice system. I think there are just wonderful applications for that. I mean, I'll, I'll be the first one to go on record, um, you know, trademark, um, that I think this should definitely be used for war games. I mean, how awesome would that be? You know, if I invest a certain amount of money and equipment for my troops, I now get to modify one of my die faces. Or if I, uh, you know, train my troops, you know, I get to uh, modify my die. You know, maybe I get to, uh, if it's a, a war game where I'm, you know, trying to roll ones, I get to take away a six and put on a five. You know, I get to reduce or I put on a one. I'm sorry. Um, if it's, uh, you know, a game that is involving, uh, you know, different kinds of tactics, you know, I can have have faces on the dies that simulate tactics like a flanking maneuver or a cavalry charge. And so I can kind of set up my dice so that when I go and I and I have a, a conflict with another player in a kind of a war game sort of setting, you know, you could have these specially crafted modified dice. I mean, how awesome would that be? I mean, 
Maybe it wouldn't work, but I just kind of see applications for this. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a few acres of snow. When that game first came out, you know, all of the deck builders to that point had kind of been like deck building is the game. And then Martin Wallace was just like, well, what if deck building was just the engine of the game? And there was a larger game going on around it. And that was kind of revolutionary at the time. And so this, to me, feels like maybe that kind of thing where it's like, okay, here's a new thing. But the applications for that new thing are actually kind of interesting and exciting to think about. So Rattlebones as a game with your family, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I don't think the theme is super strong, but it was an awful lot of fun making those dice and chucking them. So I had a great time with it, and, and my kids enjoyed it as well. Um, is it a deep strategic game? Not really. Uh, is there thought involved in strategy? Absolutely. Just like I described at the start, it's kind of like Dominion. You're going to look at those die faces that are going to be available and which ones are going to be most common uh, for you to land on because there could be duplicates. And you're going to, you know, craft a strategy around that. And then you're going to kind of roll with it and see what happens. And, and I like that part about it. Um, but I'm actually more excited about the opportunities that this kind of system uh, invites uh, for designers as, as something to play with and something to think about in future designs. So uh, that's really nifty. The other thing that, that really I wanted to just send a, a brief kind of shout out about is uh, there's a little label on that box that really caught my attention, which said Made in the USA. Um, Nothing against uh, our, our, you know, the German printing at, at Ludofact, and uh, a lot of the Chinese printing has really come a long way in, in their quality control, and uh, I'm not trying to bash anybody else. What I am saying is, though, that it's it's refreshing to me to see that, you know, this game was printed in the United States. I mean, I was only aware that Victory Point was the only company that printed in the U.S., and they kind of did a print-on-demand. And this really, you know, the quality of this was quite nice. I mean, I, I think that uh, the board looks nice, the color saturation, and, and the sharpness looks great. The components were very nice and durable. You know, and if you can print a game like this in the United States, um, you know, I, 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 I say awesome. You know, I think that's great. Um, you know, I guess uh, competition can breed some great things for the industry. And I think that if we can start printing some games here in the United States or, you know, printing them in tandem, you know, maybe the European or worldwide distribution of a game is going to be printed over in Germany or China, but the rest, you know, the North American distribution will be printed here or something like that. I, I think that's an interesting idea. And this was kind of a game that, you know, when I opened it up and looked at it, I thought, you know, the quality is, is quite nice on this. I don't know what the price point comparisons are and all that fun stuff. Um, but I really was kind of impressed, and I was glad to see that it was something that was printed here in the U.S. Uh, for those reasons that I've outlined. So uh, that was something else that I, I just wanted to kind of bring up briefly. So, um, you know, Rattlebones is a fun family game, uh, you know, again, by Rio Grande, designed by uh, Stephen Glenn. And if you're interested in this kind of, uh, you know, kind of a theme and in checking out these Rattlebones and this whole kind of dice building system, I strongly suggest you check it out. That's Rattlebones from Rio Grande. Well, that's about all the time we have left for this episode of The Long View. I want to thank my guest, Joseph Salen, for agreeing to be on the show and talk to me uh, in such great detail about the wonderful game of Terra Mystica, and also for giving us a little bit of a heads up there about all that the expansion has to offer. 
Of course, I want to mention my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. Go and check them out and see all that they have to offer in fantastic customer service, selection, and pricing. That's GameSurplus.com. I also, of course, want to mention my local game store, The Gamer's Edge, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Be sure to check them out and uh, see all the games that they have to offer and the wonderful uh, amount of space there for playing, getting together with your friends, whether it's Magic the Gathering or board games or Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon or uh, whatever it happens to be. There's something there for everybody, video games, everything, at The Gamer's Edge uh, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, right off of Interstate 80. Uh, I also want to thank everybody out there for uh, listening to my talk about the supporter drive and uh, am grateful for any support that you can give to the show. Thanks so much for that. So for Joseph and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening and have a great night.